The world needs freedom now more than ever. What a cliche to start tonight's episode of Adam versus the Man with, right? Every champion of a cause will say, yes, now more than ever is the time to listen to me. But no, really, for real. And actually, more so, as a feature of humanity accelerating, we need freedom more than ever. And... Tomorrow, we will need freedom more than we need it today, more than we needed it yesterday. And what I mean by that, it requires, in order to understand an explanation of what I mean by freedom here, right? Because as a libertarian, we define freedom as a state in which ethics is respected, right? When your self-ownership is respected, when there is no force, fraud, or coercion in society against you, you are free. When that is universal, we have a voluntary society. We have a free world. We have an ethical society. A lot of people define freedom in different ways, but for me as a voluntarist, for most of us who call ourselves libertarian, that's what it means. Ethics, ethics, ethics. So when we need ethics now more than ever. Is that really true? <laughs> no, I think, I, I, you know, I, I, maybe, maybe I, during World War II, when we, were, when we were like murdering each other in large numbers. We really could have used ethics then. World War One would have been another good time for ethics. The Crusades, the Inquisition, slavery, civil war, the the, the era of Genghis Khan. Uh, <laughs> you go back to all of the atrocities of humanity and say, yes, uh, we could have used a sense of ethics during that time. But there's a certain thing that. I want to point out and why I'm saying this now, because we are radically accelerating the human experience. And it, it, in my book, Freedom, you can see me describe this as the asymptote of the human experience. This acceleration, things go, you know, from this, this exponential growth curve that looks flat for so many years. You think about the course of human history, you know, for, from the point at which we evolved to be homo sapiens, perhaps, right? That the, the state of nature we lived in for a long time until the agriculture and the industrial revolution. I mean, historically speaking, what I'm describing is the blink of an eye in the internet ages, the start of the blink of the eye, I mean, it's insignificant time-wise. We are so blessed. We should be so grateful that we get to be alive now. The gift of human consciousness has been described as the universe becoming aware of itself, right? And in a way, our ancestors had that, but now more than ever as we expand our awareness, as we expand the potential of human consciousness, the gift is, is, is something that it's never been in human history, and it's accelerating. It's going to be more and more and more. We see that what we are in right now, what, um, what is it, Klaus Schwab of the, uh, the, the World Economic Forum describes as the fourth industrial revolution, because there is an incredible synthesis of all of these massive economic forces driving the human experience right now that, that, that is 
synergistic. It's not linear anymore. It is undeniably clearly exponential. And there are certain things that we need to look back in history to understand about this now accelerating trend in the nature of technology as being fundamentally empowering. Because throughout human history, technology, we have seen this means both to very positive and negative ends. Technology, I mean, kind of requires a definition in and of itself, the mechanical application of scientific understanding. Right, in that sense, our understanding of human knowledge it has, yes, there have, been, there have been chunks of knowledge lost over the, the eons, but fundamentally it grows. We get better, we get more capable. The more capable we are, of creation, we are also more capable of destruction. And the music about the inevitability of human progress and our acceleration towards a voluntary society, we always have to include the caveats. Well, that is if we don't get, uh, you know, the Grey Goose scenario where microscopic robots that, that, that can assimilate all matter and, and, and act like a virus and create more of themselves just Turn the planet into gray goo. Yeah, okay. Barring that, barring nuclear war, you know, we all blow ourselves up. Okay, barring things like that, you know, with the Earth, you a meteor or some other. Who knows, right? But even though there are some natural caveats, like you know, a virus, like like the real one, you know, I mean, like a real threat of a virus, right? Um, there could be those those natural things that, that interrupt this this asymptote, this acceleration of the human experience. But the bigger threats that, that should concern us are the ones that, that we can control. And this is why guiding us into the new era, libertarian ethics, in this cliche sense of the phrase are needed more than ever because it's a new fear. And just as technology cuts both ways in terms of liberation and empowerment of the common people, we have seen throughout history as well that it can be used for control and massive murder and destruction. And as we see technologies like 3D printing, artificial intelligence, Bitcoin, blockchain, all the distributed technologies, the decentralization. I mean, part of me just has confidence in the technology itself to encourage us to be more ethical. Some Bitcoin enthusiasts, and I would count myself among them, say that we might be on an evolutionary path from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens to Homo bitcoinicus <laughs> or their, their various rhetorical variations on the theme. But that a, a decentralized society driven by blockchain technology, by Bitcoin, by decentralized money, something that it, it requires trust and inherently 
encourages decentralization and ethical behavior is going to lead us inevitably by market forces, by incentive to a voluntary society. And I have that optimism. And when I look back at the section of freedom talking about this, the asymptote, the acceleration of the human experience, they, you know, like I wrote that in, in 2013, right? Or started when I, when I was in jail. What year was that? Which, which time? <laughs> For the shotgun. This, that was, was it 2014? 2013, I was in jail. 2014, we released the book. And even back then, my sense of that acceleration was not particularly unique. There are a lot of people who go, hey, 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 do you see this? <laughs> like, hey, hey, pause for a second. We're, we're about to defeat aging and be flying around on quadcopters and be all roped up to the hive mind. We're, we're, we're going to expand the capacity uh, of the human brain beyond its ability today to even conceive what that means. Stop. And there's something so powerful about this. And yeah, can I, can I get through this segment without mentioning psychedelics? No, of course not. There's something about the empowerment of the perspective. But even in what I describe as this overwhelming sensation that everything is right in the universe. Every molecule is in its place. Every person, every thought, everything, every wave of energy is exactly as it should be. We can give everybody that. We can at least give everybody that better way to live as a human in your brain, in your body, in this vehicle to life to back to the idea of the gift of human consciousness being the universe becoming aware of itself i think back to having written that idea that section of the book called the asymptote in 2013-2014 and there's something about the pride of authorship the ego that wants me to say look i saw it first but no i fucking did it not even close there have been people in the shamanic tradition going back literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, who looked at the stars and said, our destiny is not here on this rock even. To think that this is inherent to the human experience. And I guess each of us as individuals, we have the choice then. In facing this incredible human experience that we are in right now with fear or love. So to bring it back to the thing, right, where we need libertarianism now more than ever. No, but it is particularly relevant in the face of this rapidly accelerating 
human experience that we are all going through. And today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. Yes, in case you were wondering. Just to place this idea in a moment in time in history right now. Yeah, and it makes me want to cry. This is this is the ultimate beauty. And I I I want to cry because it's so it's 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 so beautiful. It's overwhelmingly beautiful. So I hope it sets the stage for all the all the other crazy shit we gotta talk about today. Our friend Ed, our uh, wonderful program director for Home from Battle Buddies and Ombudsman of Adam versus Man is still in federal custody. Uh, we have an address. It is in our Telegram group. It is in the Producers Club. We need to put this in the main channel right now. Can you do that, Joey? Joey, our co-host, is with us in studio. Let's get Joey up on stage here and Jim. I get a um, Yeah, we're going to look at your face while you look at your screen. Uh, How about that? Um, I got I to gotta load my pipe here. Yeah, I got a lot um, of scrolling up. The uh, producer's club has been pretty busy lately. Yeah, but before we get to producer notes, uh, this, is, this is really the most important thing. If you can write a letter to Ed in jail right now, you would greatly appreciate it. Um, he is in Virginia, right? Because there's a lawsuit in the DC about the DC jail, and holy shit! Uh, surprise, surprise! Yeah, I'm, there's. Inefficiency in government processing this. Uh, we're, we're, so we're going to get into that. We, we got uh, some updates about Ed. We're going to get to this evening. Uh, we've got two wonderful guests. Uh, Michael Tyler Moore, who is uh, just Troy. Troy Moore, excuse me, who uses his middle name, of course, to distinguish himself from all the other Michael Moores out there. Uh, Michael Troy Moore, who is leading a lawsuit effort for the Fremont Street Performers in Las Vegas. So we're going to get to that um, in about an hour and 15 minutes. But in just 15 minutes, we've got Mark, Mark Eglinton join us again. Um, and he is the author of uh, No Domain. I'm just going to double check here because we're messaging. Okay, cool. Yes, he's going to be joining us um, in, in just about 15 minutes here. Mark Eglinton, author of uh, No Domain, the Mark, or excuse me, the, uh, the, the John McAfee case. Um, which I listened to the audiobook of recently while doing chainsaw work, and it's it's really a great story. Um, we got him on before too. Yes, we got him on. He's great. We'll talk about that. Um, that. Today we're going to get to do like updates on the McAfee situation with him and Joey. Now uh, joining us uh, for this interview is like all geeked out on his uh, musical background. Yeah, yeah. There, there it is on screen. The uh, the Orange, Virginia address for where Ed is in federal custody. It is also in Telegram, t.me slash versus the man. You want to read it into record uh, for the audio list? Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. 13021 James Madison Highway, Orange, Virginia 22960. Um, and I guess they, they want his full name is Vallejo Edward T. With no his name in all caps. No spaces. That's all caps, weird. no spaces. Vallejo, V-A-L-L-E-J-O. E-D-W-A-R-D-T. That sounds like a Harry Potter like team. What Quidditch team? Vallejo <laughs> Edwards. Vallejo Edwards. Vallejo Edwards. Voldemort. 
Yeah. No, but right, and, and there's a way that you can text in too, and that information is in uh, the Adverse Demand public chat. Yep. All right, so uh, big producer note first, I get to lead off with is, we're starting! Woo! We're so cool! Yeah, so um, I get to be backstage. We're going to get Joey a better webcam. I'm actually. Just we're going to get Adam a better webcam. Yeah, we're going to get me a better webcam for the next <laughs> show. But I get to be backstage, so I get to, I get I get to, to use mine. I get to use StreamYard and fuck with Jim while he's doing the show. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't want to get we're on Starlink now, and I've got great service all over the property on my phone, but I'm showing one little bar in the top corner on my Streamlink feed. Are you getting that too right now? One little bar in the cover of your... For the Wi-Fi coverage. No. That it's slow. That's so strange. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, it's screaming download. Um, yeah. It is, what, like we got 106? I mean, I'll, I'll just... 200. I'll do it screenshot. Do it again. You got a screenshot with 200 downloads? 200 megabyte downloads? That's, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Now, for us, obviously, streaming upload might be a slight... I don't... Impediment. I don't know two two HD webcams and two backgrounds on or two two Streamyard connections at the same time. See, we're splitting now. Now I'm only getting like forty. It says our our upload is split. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Well, we're running our laptops. We're both running laptops with Streamyard and, and um, our phone. Either way, this is this is revolutionary. With our Gardenia satellite internet. In the middle of nowhere. We could declare war on the United States, and they could not cut off our internet. <laughs> and with that, uh, yeah, so we're very excited about, we're now that it's, now that it's a little warmer, um, and with the time shift next week on Arizona Local Time, the show will be at 5 and 6. As you see right now, I don't even have my studio light on. We're, we're, this, is, this is sunlight. This is, Joey has hers on. Springtime. I'm prepared because the sun it is, is the background behind it you. is going down right yeah. now. Wow. Um, yeah. I'm gonna have to plug this thing in. But I think you guys can hear us better now. Yeah. 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 Well we are looking forward yeah. to over the next couple of weeks improving our uh, our production game with Adam versus the man. Now that we have uh, we have satellite in it. It's very exciting. And we're, well, I, I don't want to, uh, we got other stuff in the works. It's like I stay behind the scenes for now with, uh, with, with Adverse and Man. But there's, there's more exciting developments happening that this makes possible. And with that, um, let's smoke weed every day and then do the producer. Show. My favorite part. That was a very beautiful opening to the show, and I'd just like to quickly remind everybody, t.me forward slash Adam versus the man is the public telegram channel where it is free to join and you can follow anything that's going on with Adam versus the man. Uh, if you need that address uh, written down to you somewhere, you missed it a few seconds ago, it'll be there at t.me forward slash Adam versus man. If you want to support the show financially, patreon.com forward slash Adam versus man. Uh, 
prices uh packages all the way down to one dollar a month super easy to support the show if you want to do it that way and homefrontbattlebuddies.org uh, where all of your donations are theft deductible there we go got a great show lined up i'm excited yeah yeah that's it well we have to we talk, we talk, we talk about ed until uh about for ed. our first segment um, actually somebody has a question for you oh no i'm gonna, I'm gonna feel this uh Clyde Rise is Adam D. Microdose mushrooms or LSD. What amount before or after you eat once a day? That's a good question. <laughs> this is a very good question. Um, do I microdose mushrooms or LSD? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, both. <clears throat> um, and first, the term microdose should be defined as something that is experienced with, with a psychoactive drug beyond below. Uh, conscious noticing threshold um, just for the purposes of me answering the question there are people where, you know, and, and, and I'm actually very excited as we expand our home run battle buddies operations here and the general gardenia hospitality and growing and giving away mushrooms program to really grow in my own understanding I do I do profess general ignorance you know, I, I, I want to uh, you know, I, I think that's a very important attitude towards psychedelics as well that humility uh, as you alter your state of consciousness. So with mushrooms, uh, by the way, it's, it's it, my experience with microdosing <clears throat> has been, you know, all around. Well, shit, I should say. So you remember yesterday? <laughs> I think I should. Time. I think I should answer this yesterday, question by telling the story yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yesterday, I did an Good eighth story. of mushrooms. When I started my my chainsaw day, and I had an epic day yesterday with the chainsaw. I mean, I I, I cleaned up our 600 plus year old tree. Um, I mean, it's a fucking monster of a tree, and, and I should say we have some stumps on the property where, like, you can look at it and, and put me full screen again. I got I got to use my hand. Yes, we have, we have a trunk that's like uh, about two feet around. If you look at the rings, go to 400 years. This is a 400-year-old tree. And then I, the tree that I worked on yesterday, it's a giant V, and at the base of it, it's literally, I got to measure it. I got to get, like, when we get the area all cleaned up, but, like, holy shit, six feet across, four feet thick. It's like like a big oval. <laughs> legit. Huge, big, huge. Like, legit. Six, I, I got to say, there's no way that tree's less than 600 years. If someone wants to... Come out or get, 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 get an arborist or professional tree age measure person. Um, by the way, dear, your shot just got clearer. Um, uh, please send them our way. I'd love, I'd love to learn more about the trees and the property. So I took and ate the mushrooms when I got started. So I worked like 10 a.m. to because I did tours in the morning first. Got up at eight, uh, or got like really a moving at 8 a.m. Did a couple hours of chores. Um, got started on the chainsaw. Took an eighth of mushrooms at uh, at, at 10 a.m. and then uh, it was it was a great great trip. Like that to me that was microdose low dose. You know, like to me an eighth. I am familiar enough with mushrooms at this point that I'm very comfortable being an eighth in. You know, depending on on the strain. Where is it, it, it's just more than a microdose. I'm very comfortable working on a chainsaw while tripping now 
either I'm, I'm comfortable hey. with the chainsaw, I'm comfortable tripping, you know. Time out. G.I. Machine, G.I. Joe, safety-esque <laughs> issue, right? The more you know. Yeah. Salty mushrooms and chainsaw work at home. Do not, the road. do not try this. <coughs> no, I should I should say they're they're no, I mean it's, it's be, you use your own judgment. Think for yourself. How about that? That's it. Clive um, actually touched on that. Makes right. sense for you. Yeah. So yeah, is it a, is an eighth a microdose or not? It's definitely more than a microdose for me, but not by much, right? It's like a party dose, it's like a nice buzz dose. Um but for me I, a couple safety notes on on both psychedelics and uh, chainsaw work or manual labor or any sort of physically risky activity while on drugs is it um, you should be familiar with both the activity and the drugs before combining them and I have done that extensively in this case and um, the chainsaw by the way is extremely safe as far as chainsaws goes it's a quarter electric so like you let go of the trigger like you would be if if, if if I had to go on full speed and hit my finger and let go of the trigger, it probably wouldn't even it stops that fast. It probably wouldn't. But like you lose a finger, but you lose a leg. It's not like a gas chainsaw that can run away from you. Keep going. Yeah, no, yeah, and that's scary. That's something else. But it's also it's very lightweight, and I have a lot of control. And for me. 16 because I'm you know I'm 200 you do like nine hours a day on that yeah I'm 210 pounds I'm, I'm very yeah it's a very easy motion um as a safety grip lever too yeah I, I've never used it though the kick grip thing so that if it kicks back it hits your forearm and it it, it, it breaks like a little like a car brake it breaks the chain before it hits you in the face that's what that safety is for so yes it does have one of those I've never used it. I've never needed it. I've never. I've never. Says you do. Huh? The government says you do. Yeah, right. What, what but, you know, I'm glad that it's there. It's a good thing because because if I fell, that my yeah. forearm, my forearm hitting the brake would stop the chain before my face hits the chain. Look, That's kind of nice to know, right? It's nice but, to know for me too because I don't want to come around the corner to that thing, quite yeah. frankly. Um, but the the worst I've had, I've, I've hit my finger with one of these electrics while just more or less sober, uh, a little weed and, and mostly tired. Um, someone says, Clyde, what, what do you need to be cutting so much out there in the desert? You probably got a lot of lumber on your property. No, no, we're not. We're out the desert. We are the, the high mountain forests of Arizona at 5,200 feet. Go look at our, our, our Telegram channel. And don't worry, we're going to talk about Ed and get all cut up there and that and some new stuff when we're done. Um, but no, we have tree privacy on 10 acres. We have beautiful coverage with trees out here in Juniper Wood Ranch in Arizona. Watch it. Um, if you go up to Flagstaff, uh, an hour west of us, and 2,000 feet higher, you have Pine. dense conifer forests. Whereas here we have um, mid-density junipers that are developing and getting thicker. And I, I mean, I should share last, yes, we're still doing the domes, Clive. Last time I did a lot of mushrooms here, um, I walked up to one of my trees and I literally hugged it. No, I'm just kidding. I looked up at it. And I was like, this tree's got to be like 150, 200 years old. And it's like a middle thickness one that's like 30, 35 feet tall. And I was like, I own this tree. And then I laughed at that idea. Like, wait, I just turned 40 years old. This tree is like at least four times my age. I am like, 
I'm it's, it's going to be here for hundreds oh, yeah. of years after I'm gone, unless I, I end up unload, uploading my consciousness to a robot, which I'm looking forward to. But like, I am at best a custodian of this little slice of the surface of the earth. And I, I, I am not in any way denying that, that ownership in terms of, you know, human understanding property is still not the best way. I'm, I'm absolutely ANCAP locking and believe in that concept of property rights and homesteading. Um, but uh, it, 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 in, a, in a much more humble sense, I am, I am a custodian of this, of this slice of nature. And so anyway, yesterday, then at three o'clock, I took like another eighth of mushrooms, but it was, it was powdered. It was like really fucking intense. And it wasn't a big deal. Like I, I had such an awesome afternoon and evening. And, and Joey knows because I came home at dark. And I was still tripping balls. It felt like I mean, you can attest to this, but it was uh, you announced it. You're like, I, I love it. Yeah, because yeah. uh, it was pow- the power. The think? second dose of mushrooms I took was like, and it, and it. I don't want to say it was a heroic dose, but it took it to a dose where I had to lay down. I don't. I had, I had to lie down. And I was looking up at the tree and closing my eyes and then the line of the trees in my eyes turned these beautiful psychedelic patterns, you know, against my eyelids. And but that was like ten minutes. Less time than it would have taken to eat a meal. And I went right back to the fucking chainsaw and had like an awesome, epic, productive afternoon. And and then came back here and and had a wonderful evening uh, with with Joey and the puppy celebrating his birthday and oh, yeah. the dogs and uh, eating an epic meal and uh, we watched the second half of the Walter Matthau movie Pirates from 1986. Oh my god, that movie in itself is enough to make you trip. It is. It's um, so fucking weird. There was there, there had to be a lot yeah. of drugs. It, Roman Polanski directed and wrote this. For anybody who knows who he is, I'm sure there were a lot of psychedelic drugs being used while he was writing it. And <laughs> I, I just, I think, can safely say, yeah. Right, so, so, but back to the question uh, with with LSD, I've done similar stuff, and I've done it um, for uh, different circumstances. I've done half a tab, a tab. I've, I've, it, it's. It's something you just got to play with for yourself and figure out where your thresholds are and enjoy it. Um, I haven't done any uh, long-term sustained microdosing, but it's something that as I, as, I, as I can get more access and we're growing our own here, definitely want to be doing more of. So, um, shit, I don't have an introduction pulled up for Mark and he's backstage now going, oh, shit. Um, it's in no, Telegram. I mean, it's in Telegram. Oh, that's right, because you put it in the show. Promo. In the show yeah, you're promo. so you're such a great club. Oh, so well organized. So it's on our main channel. Yeah. Um, I did. Oh, and, and um, actually, one thing. Oh, uh, no, we'll come back. We're gonna come back to Ed because I wanna I wanna make sure that we really um, Just cover it properly. There's a question about your right. juniper trees. Oh, one more question. Oh yeah, yeah, on Odyssey. Ah, I'm not seeing the Odyssey comments. Are you Go making ahead. Are you making gin from juniper berries? Oh, that Healthy is disrespect for authority. Asks. Jim figured out how to put the. Yeah, you shared. Crazy, isn't it pretty awesome? Jim, 
gin. The Adam vs. the Man variety is taking off. Um, are you making gin from juniper berries? No, it's, it's really just flavoring as I understand. You still need a, a carbohydrate base to create the, uh, the, the liquor. Um, but I am exploring all the different fun things that we can do with juniper. But most importantly, it's an awesome, awesome source of firewood out here. And with that, let's get to our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us tonight, best-selling Scottish author and co-writer Mark Eglinton joins us. His recent books include Blindsided with former Australian rugby captain and stroke survivor, stroke survivor Michael Linog. By the way, um, I, this is a chance that, that for, for Mark – uh, and, and well, me and Joey to explore a little bit more of, of Mark's catalog. And as a former rugby player myself, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, but that was uh, shortlisted for International Autobiography of the Year in 2016, Heavy Duty Days and Nights and Judas Priest with musician KK Downing. And Joey's all like, Yes, yeah, yeah. that's what I want to talk about. One of Rolling Stone's 10 music books of 2018, and most recently, Reboot My Life, My Life, My Time with Football Legend Michael Owen. Um, also shortlisted for Autobiography of the Year in 2020 by the Daily Telegraph. And uh, I, I recently, uh, so we spoke uh, earlier in the, the process with No Domain, the book about John McAfee, um, my former running mate for the Libertarian Party nomination for president, who was murdered one way or another in a Spanish jail cell uh, while there for tax evasion. Um, and, and we're going to get into that a little bit here with Mark as well now that some time has passed. Uh, but I, I had the, the pleasure recently of listening to the entire audiobook of uh, No Domain while doing chainsaw work out here. And, you know, it, it's, it, 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 it was so powerful uh, for me personally to connect with my friend and to hear his words, so to speak, from beyond the grave. So, Mark, I, I want to thank you for that. Really, for uh, I mean, for what you did doing doing our, our friend John McAfee justice with uh, with that book. How are you today, sir? I appreciate it. I, I'm still trying to get over that intro, which was quite lengthy and impressive, and I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate what you said about No Domain because it was people like you that I was really keen to get some kind of feedback from for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one, you knew him. Two, you understand that lifestyle. Uh, you know. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Are you accusing me of understanding the John McAfee lifestyle? That's, that's not, a, not a human possible feat, but I, I think I am uniquely appreciative of it. Yeah, you're a lot closer than most. Um, you know, for, for that reason, it was really important to me. And, you know, I think people going into it didn't really know what to expect. I think a lot of people went in there thinking there was going to be a lot of, uh, well, what I describe as the kind of noise around John. Uh, and there is a lot of noise around John. And a lot of the noise was noise that John created. But that really wasn't the book that we did. The book that we we wanted to do was was the man John McAfee and what it was that motivated him to be the guy he was, what it was he felt, what it was his philosophy and life was. Yeah. And that was stuff that he'd never done before. And hmm. I think he found it really challenging to do it. 
and uh, there were moments for sure where it kind of felt like he was pulling back from the abyss. Mm. And I was fine with that because, you know, there's a guy that's lived a life. I was kind of pushing him down different directions, pushing back on stuff in order to try and keep it sane. Because this is something somebody said to me a few times. In fact, one of the reviewers who I really uh, appreciate said, had John been allowed to be turned loose on his own with an autobiography co-written by me, it would have been madness because there'd be there'd just be absolutely no uh, there'd be no checks and balances. There'd be nobody saying, "Wait a minute, that is insane. That couldn't have happened." So, in the way that this book kind of came to be, the the, the format it's in, I now look back on it and think that was a real twist of luck that we ended up doing it like we did because it allowed us to do this kind of back and forth and I think that actually benefited in a better book than it would have been otherwise he used you like a therapist yeah did you I mean did you got a sense of that as this was going that, that he was that he, he was downloading he was processing his own life I don't think again Tell us the, the, the timeline over, over which this happened and how the project came together again, please. Yeah, I mean, this the first conversation we had was in uh, September of 2019. At that point, John was in hiding, wherever that was. I didn't know where that was at the time. That was what was so strange about it. And I contacted him and asked him if he wanted to write an autobiography because that's what I do, as you introed me there. You know, the work I do is with musicians, with sports people, with business types, et cetera. And I just wanted to do the same with John. And he was very guarded at the beginning. He was, you know, what's it going to cost me? Who the hell are you? Right. All this shit. And that's fair enough. And <laughs> there was quite a funny part at the beginning because he said to me, send me a link of some, some of your work or something like that. And that week I just had an interview with a local newspaper, which he'd never heard of. And for some reason I sent him that. And he came back to me and said, I don't give a fuck what anyone writes about you. I want to I want to see your writing. So kind of chastened a little bit by that kind of beatdown, I went back and sent him, a, a, I think I sent him a, several chapters of a book I wrote with a member of the band Pantera. Uh, it was one of the first music books I ever wrote. That book was intentionally really gritty, really grimy, really kind of hard hitting. And he came back to me straight away and said, you're, you're the guy I want to work with. So John's life is there's something I, I would say that John and I had as as a kind of a kindred spirits that I think you were uniquely able to capture being more of a music writer essentially, right? Because a, a, there there's something that. I mean, I, I used to tell people, you know, like, I want to be John McAfee when I grow up. And that had nothing to do with the money or the tech shit. Like, no, I just, I want to, I want to grow up mentally to be the complete, beautiful human being whose life is a song. Yeah. Whose, whose life is, is, is an unending improv riff in crescendo. Mm -hmm. And you caught him at such a beautiful time in his life where, you were able to, I mean, your, your job, I mean, it's hard to say who gets more credit as the creative mind behind the book 
<laughs> no domain like you were John because you you were the vessel you captured it you know in, in a very unique way and was you were able to present it and pull out of him as well, who John needed for a therapist at the end of his life was a music writer who was going to try to pull a biography out of him and and what you created with that was what, what was the song that was the final note to John McAfee's life beyond, I'm not counting, of course, his, his incarceration and murder. Um, and and, and I, 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 I mean, that's, that's what I, I, that, I think that's the best I can do for pitching your book and your work in that sense. I hope that that speaks to you as, as the creator. Yeah? yeah, it very much does. But you said, you said something interesting there. Uh, you said that I call him a beautiful moment. Now, that, that might be the case, but there's an irony there that he was in a situation that was anything but beautiful at that time. This was a guy who was under quite a lot of duress. And I saw that duress a lot during While We Talked because while a lot of the conversations, John was very friendly and very open and very cheerful, there were a good few days where John would, well, <laughs> there was a good few days where he just disappeared. And there was another few days when he was pretty bad-tempered, and I could tell that there was stuff going on in his life that was nothing to do with what we were talking about. So I think it's the combination of those things. Your beautiful moment in life, I think, is true in the sense that I think he knew he was pretty near the end of his life. I think he knew this was probably, probably the last opportunity he'd ever have to talk to somebody in this way. But at the same time, he was in a really tough spot. So I think, you know... The combination of those forces probably forced him to give me the kind of information that I just happened to be there to get out of him. But you know, I, I'll take your I'll take your uh, critique uh, and I'll run with it because uh, <laughs> I really I really appreciate what you're saying. But it, it's interesting. You talk about music, and we we talked a lot about music. And you know, people call me a music writer. I'm I'm, I'm really not. I just wrote about music. Right, early in my career, and the reason I did it was because I grew up as a metalhead, and I'm still a metalhead, and I will always be one. And when I wanted to get into writing, the path of least resistance for me was to go to heavy metal. You know, what do you know about? Who, what can you write about? And that's what I could do. And the same applied to sport to a lesser extent. But it's it's really not about the music or the rugby or the soccer or even John McAfee. It's about the people. And I keep people who ask me about what it is I do always ask me the same questions. And it always goes back to the same thing. It is about relating to another person. And it doesn't matter what that other person does. They can do anything. And John McAfee, for me, was just somebody who did something else. I didn't, yeah. I didn't sort of categorize him as being some, something in any way different from what I'd done before. He was just another person. And I just had to go down the same path I'd done with everybody else, which is get to know you, what makes you what you are, where can we find common ground? And the, and the great thing about John, and sorry to ramble on here, is that I, I've worked with a lot of people who don't actually give a shit about me. Uh, and that's not a criticism. It's just how it is. But John did. He, huh. spent, he spent as much time asking me about my life as I did his. And obviously, my life wouldn't be very interesting reading so it didn't make it in the book but I, th I think I think it's reflective of the kind of man he was that he actually cared about what I thought and what I felt about things and you know if he, he described a situation in his life he would say have you ever experienced anything like this 
And in fact, one instance did get into it because he was talking about bereavement. And he asked me if I'd ever lost anyone close to me. And I said, well, actually, I have lost my father. I, I mean, wh what kind of a person does that that isn't deeply empathetic? Uh, and that, that that's what I left the whole project thinking. I just had huge respect for John's empathy. Yeah, so I, I want to touch on both of those because the, the last thing you said there I think is so critical to people who live at that higher vibration in terms of how you relate to and appreciate people because you can't live your life as a beautiful dance, as a, as a, as a song, as music, if you can't listen to your own soul, if yeah. you can't have that empathy for yourself. And when a person who has that extreme empathy for themselves, because what that means is it's an appreciation for the human will, and the one that you are closest to, the one that is your own, you want to see expressed in the world. You want to see that alive. And if you don't have that relationship to yourself, you can't have that relationship with other people. And people who have that deep, rich relationship with themselves and therefore live as a shining light, as a song that we want to hear, like with John's life, it, it, it's driven by that empathy, that connection, that appreciation for the human soul itself in a way that speaks through how they then live. But I want to, I want to like completely disagree with you on the on your your narrative, your understanding of that moment in John's life, and suggest a completely different narrative. And then you see if, if, if this rings true for you, okay. but. I, I never, because I was working with John as a colleague, as an activist, as my running mate during a certain period of that time that, that he was on the run. And maybe it was biased in my experience by we have the chance to win the Libertarian Party nomination. We have the chance to take your message, John, of, 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 of tax evasion and, and everything that you've done in righteous activism and living differently since... You, you you know sold or cashed out of, of, of McAfee the the corporation and and, and have, have gone on this epic life journey. We have the chance to use your story as an example to run you know in in absentia almost or run in, in exile for vice president. I mean it was, it was it was an epic positive undertaking and in a sense when I listen to the tapes, yeah it has that profound impact for me now in hindsight that he's not with us. But I think he was setting the stage for a comeback. I don't think he was I don't think he was saying, all right, this is it. He wanted to be understood so that he could come back. That if he was if however his journey ended, I, I think what he wanted to do was to to tell his case in the court of public opinion before the government had a chance to, if it, it played out as he got captured and extradited, as I think might have happened. And, and, you know, we've talked about this on the show a lot, but the reason, and this last thing I'll say on this narrative, that, that the reason they had to murder him is that John McAfee on the loose in the United States, even if it's because he's in a jail cell, but he's in the United States, and he's got Mark. A credible third party is an author telling a story. They couldn't allow that. Yeah. He would have been real. He, he would have been in this. I want your take on this in the bigger sense because 
you're outside of the United States and you're outside of politics and you're outside of libertarianism. Mm -hmm. But I go, oh my God, John McAfee is this beautiful destabilizing force to the evil empire of the American political system. Yeah, hundred um, percent. No, listen, I take on board your your insight. I mean, you you had dealings with them uh, on the level that I didn't have. And I'll always listen to someone else's viewpoint. You could be right about that. I mean, he did say to me that, you know, arguably he could do more in his position of in hiding as he could have done when he was back in the U.S. I mean, in hiding, he argued that he could talk to journalists, he could do interviews, he could go on podcasts, he could talk to me, he could prod the hornet's nest in an even more effective way from a distance mm -hmm. as he could do up close. So, you know, you know I, I, I give some credence to what you were saying. Whether, whether it was to set up a comeback or not, I don't know. But I would certainly go as far as to say that he didn't ever envisage that he wouldn't be around to see this book come out. Because, I mean, I, I had dialogue directly with him and also via Janice where he said, you know, we, yeah. can't, wait, we can't wait for this to come out because we're going to promote it, we're going to back it and all this kind of stuff. So... Yeah, I, I take your point. You, you you do make a good observation there, and you could you could very well be onto something. So, speaking of Janice, uh, what's your take on what she's doing right now, pursuing the Spanish government and ruling on McAfee's death and uh, the, the issues around custody of the body? Really complicated, uh, and uh, I say this with great respect to anyone else involved, but. I have heard from John's daughter and she doesn't like the fact that the book exists. And that's fine. I mean, she, she's entitled to her opinion on it. She didn't like the 47 biological children comment. And I think in her mind, she thinks I said that. And, you know, that's something John said. Uh, no, yeah. Listen, I, I understand her, her position. It can't be easy being the daughter of uh, a guy like John McAfee, but you know, to, to kind of take it out on me because the, the book wasn't a big win for her emotionally, uh, I think is perhaps the wrong way to go about it. But l let's leave that. Janice's position, I don't understand. Uh, I saw, like everybody else saw, the, the post she put on Instagram and Twitter, I think it was around Christmas time, where she kind of implied that her situation wasn't something she controlled. Uh, I can't remember her exact terminology, but it was like, you know, I'm being kind of forced to stay here. Uh, and I believe that certain people don't want me to leave. That was quite cryptic for to me. And I don't really know what it means. And I still don't. Any dialogue I have had with her has been friendly. It has been infrequent. She said, you know, great stuff for the book. Uh, anything I can do to promote it, et cetera, I will. And she has done in terms of what she is actually doing in Spain and where she is in Spain, I do not know. What I do know, and I spoke to a journalist who's who works in Spain. He actually works for a UK newspaper. And the Spanish lawyers are saying nothing. And they've basically said nothing since day one. They've been impossible. The Spanish court have to say something. And the situation, as I understand it at the moment, is his body is still where it was. And there is going to be a hearing it was originally intended to be in uh, March or April to even discuss whether the possibility of another autopsy is 
something that's even going to fly. That's not even a certainty at, that, at this point. There still needs to be another hearing to decide whether they can have a hearing on that. Now, there's not even a date for that first thing. So, I mean, we could we could easily be in the situation where we're a year down the line from his death and nothing is resolved. Now, you, you tell me, is, that, is there anything normal about that? <laughs> yeah. In America? <laughs> uh, well, you know, Mark, before we before we get on to your, your exploits as a as a music writer, uh, I, I mean, what what does that tell you? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't there be a massive fucking Streisand effect with this when the government says, "Don't look at people like John McAfee"? I mean, I, I, you think about. Oh, what's that epic speech where they go and then and then they kill people like that? Or is it is it like the great dictator speech? You know, you know anybody who who really has that potential to challenge the powers that be by waking people up by challenging us the masses to uh, overthrow the yoke end up getting killed. You know, do you put? John in, in in a category like that, and and what is it then that you would hope people get from your book? Well, listen, I, I don't actually put him in that category, and I'll tell you why. Because the the dead man switch theory, which I've avoided, has come yeah. to nothing. It's come to nothing, as far as I know. It's come to nothing, uh, and I have to say, I never thought it would. Now, remove that, and what are you left with? You're left with somebody that says you don't have to pay tax. And, you know, if you want to go and use cryptocurrency as a, as a means of not doing it, go ahead and do it. But let's be honest, John is hardly the first to have said that. And he definitely won't be the last. Is that a reason why this guy's body should still not be returned to the US? Before you finish that, I, I got I to interrupt and say, no, John McAvee was the first who was a tech mogul, multimillionaire, who had that credibility of an undeniable household name. Fair enough. Do you think it, do you think it matters, though? I mean, at that point, I mean, a lot of people didn't even know that. I, I, I would say that a lot of people who were listening to John talk about cryptocurrency probably didn't have much of a clue that he even was involved in antivirus back at the beginning. A lot of these people would have, a few of them. A lot of these people would have been people that picked him up in Belize and thought, this guy's just a nut. And I just absolutely love this whole life. This guy, you know, going around on a yacht and all this kind of thing. I think a lot of people bought into that whole maverick thing without really focusing on the tech stuff. I think you discount, though, the, the fundamental credibility of the undeniable resume point that he carries with him. Even if it's reduced to one sentence, he was the guy behind McAfee antivirus and then he sold out his share and went on this epic adventure of his own like and, and now he's here wherever you're meeting him even if it's reduced to that I think I'll, that I'll give you that. entree and and I'm and maybe this is more in and you know I you're you're maybe more of an inherent free thinker but for American politics, it was a big point for him in, in, in running, you know, in sort of having his foot in the door, even with the Libertarian Party, 
yeah. before he really was a libertarian in in precise philosophical thought. And I I'll remind people I I take significant credit for that because he read my book. Whereas before that, he you know he was talking about and this is in his 2016 race when he ran sure. with our friend Fred Weiss. Uh, he started this campaign saying, "I'm going to be the best tech security president." I know more about cybersecurity than any other candidate by far, and therefore will lead the U.S. government in keeping America cyber secure. And then he read my book and was like, "Never mind, I'm going to use my expertise to really <laughs> hands off completely as government when it comes to technology." Um, and and uh, that, but but seeing how I could use him as a running mate. to bolster my credibility because he's the guy who made a hundred million dollars creating the thing of yeah. and I got to give you credit in, in your book because I didn't know that much of the details of the backstory, but hearing it in, in no domain um, actually gave me a good appreciation for that. But sorry, I want to go back to you to give you the, 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 the thought on this uh, before we get to talking a little bit about music and giving Joey a chance to pick your brain here. Um, what do you want people to learn from John McAfee's story and life? Yeah, I mean, it's the same as what it was at the beginning for me. And it was always the sense that you, you, you can live a life that isn't guided by convention, by what, you know, you, you know the standard jobs. The sta I mean, this is offset slightly because I've said this a couple of times and people have shot me down and I'll, I'll, I'll take it again if that's where you're going. It is a lot easier. It's a lot easier to to live the kind of life that John lived with money, and I think I've said before that if most people tried to live the kind of life he lived, you'd be homeless in twenty four hours, if not 48, 48 hours. But I don't think it matters. That part of it doesn't matter. What what matters is to to have the willingness to to walk away from what is considered normal, and the the willingness to think about life in a different way. And these sound like really vague concepts. I get that, but that's what it, that's what appealed to me. And when I left the book uh, and left the conversations with John, it made me apply a completely different mindset to my own life. You know, the kind of stuff that I used to take sort of really seriously uh, or or kind of kind of stress about, I kind of stopped stressing about because one of the things John said to me in a conversation that really stuck with me was, if you can't get over a minor disagreement with a colleague, a family member, even your wife in five seconds, you, you are lost because in the scheme of life, it is so inconsequential. And, you know, it's, it's easy to say these kind of things, but it's very difficult to actually do them. But when I walked away from the project with John, I really have tried to do that with things and it actually works. It gives you a certain type of freedom that I did not have before I met John. And, you know, when somebody sends me an email chasing me for a deadline or, you know, there's this edit is meant to be in by such and such a day. It, it, before I used to sort of jump on that and say, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it to, to today or I, I feel like, you know, I should really respond or or sort of go crawling to these people. I just don't do that anymore. It's basically, I'll do it when I'm going to do it. And if if you don't like that, what are you ultimately going to do about it? And I think when you start thinking like that, you're, you're in a whole different sphere of living. And the book is full of that. I mean, you, you talked about his early life and how much you didn't know about it. it, it 
I mean, the stuff pre-McAfee to me was the most interesting stuff. This guy was going to companies and basically slapping sort of page-long documents on the desk on day one saying, here's your program. And by the way, I'll never work from the office. And if you need me, I'll come every second Friday. And these people just did it. And he just disappeared in Rio or wherever it was in Munich and lived in a house with homeless people or in Munich, in Rio, sort of, you know, wandering around in the carnival while he's meant to be meant to be working. I, I just think that that mindset is just so magical. And as I said at the beginning, tough to employ in the real world, particularly at the moment. But just if you can get that mindset of, yeah, we've only, we've only got one life. You know, let let's live it uh, without boundaries and without limitations. That would be, in a very long-winded way, what I would take out of it. All right, yeah, no, Mark, that's a beautiful point, and and I I want to back that up, but I I, I also want to suggest a slight reframing there because you say it's not easier. You need you, know, you need to start with a hundred million dollars, and obviously for certain specific things that John McAfee pulled off, yeah, you need that. But when you say it's harder, I didn't stay in on the hamster wheel is harder. Uh, you know, and I think for you, you should appreciate how much for yourself as an author, you've led a fundamental life of entrepreneurship the same way that John did. And that, that's really the critical difference. And it's a lot easier than letting other people dictate your life. And it's a better way to live. And I think, I think John McAfee showed that beautifully. And, 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 and yeah, I want to, I want to tell people, Something that, that you you touched on there that's well captured in the book that a lot of people don't know about John is that prior to McAfee Associates, what he did was a type of high tech consulting work where he would go. Is, is that is that is that unfair? No, it's spot on. Yeah, but what he would do was so, he was so hyper capable. He found these leverage points where he realized that remaking companies. He could do so efficiently. He could produce above and beyond what people expected him to be able to produce on an hourly basis. They could come into the office once a week and still sustain these relationships with companies where he justified his massive compensation and was able to go around as a sort of, I mean, gun for you know, hired tech consultation guru who could remake companies. And walk away with with hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars at a time, like it was no big deal. Um, but but the, the 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 lesson there isn't oh you have to be some crazy you know above and beyond tech genius to pull that off. You just have to find your niche. You have to define your lifestyle to what's appropriate and 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 find what's really high value for you, mm -hmm. not what's high value for some some somebody who wants to make you a cog in their machine. Now, Mark, before we before we get uh, Joey on screen here, we have one comment uh, question from the audience from uh, Clyde Rides, and 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 this is the first time hearing about this. Is there a movie deal for No Domain? Clyde yes. Rides says, when it's appropriate, I have a question for Mark. How much direction and hands-on will you have on the AMDM AMDC Films production? So, oh. Light us up, Mark. What, what's the what's the deal here? Yeah. So uh, in the in the months after the the first interviews I did, one of which was with you when John died in June, uh, there was a lot of interest. I had a lot of film people coming to me saying, "Can we option the book? Can we option the tapes? Can we option your ass? 
what can we auction? And uh, <laughs> these people came with different approaches. There was kind of hippie type guys who were wanting to do something kind of arty. That was cool. Amanda Milius, who ended up uh, acquiring the rights, is John Milius of Apocalypse Now, uh, fame's daughter. And she is a big fan of strong men figures. And she got the McAfee mystique very quickly. And I felt she was the right person to do this. So she acquired the rights to the book and the tapes. And she has an option to make a documentary if she wishes and also a scripted movie. Uh, personally, I think both will happen. Uh, I think there's scope for both in terms of, uh, I, I mean, completely off, well, not off the record, actually, I'm going to tell you, I think a scripted movie would be fantastic because yeah. I think it would give the kind of, y you need a lot of creative license with McAfee, and I think a movie kind of gives you that. A documentary, you're tied to the facts. Granted, with McAfee, it's not certain what the facts are, but you're still tied to some facts. Whereas I think the scripted thing would be awesome. And I think if they got the right person, Robert Downey Jr., somebody like that. If he's listening, you know, there's a job here for you. No, no yeah. sorry, I, I think it would be yeah. great. Uh, so that's ongoing. Will I have input? Well, I've got consultancy built into it. And I think that will probably be merely to offer guidance in terms of what's in the tapes, any queries on the actual book itself, any background that they can't find. I'll, I'll be very happy to do that. In terms of having any sort of direct input as to what it's going to look like, that's not my domain. All right, well, if any of the producers are listening, let me tell you, I hope that you make sure Mark is involved to capture the music of yeah. John's life for the project. And with that, Let's get Joey on screen here. Um, Joey had some questions she wanted to ask specifically about some of your music writing. So Joey, go you ahead. know, I feel like you answered them all though. Like I like I saw that you write so much about metal. You're a metalhead. I grew up in a pit myself, so I love it. I got goosebumps when you said you're a metalhead and always will be. It. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's liberating well, in of itself. And Maccabees Luck really was. Fucking metal! Yeah! And really encompass that spirit. People who don't understand heavy metal don't even know it exists. You know, I meet people who, I mean, in my sort of previous life, when I when I was on the hamster wheel, and I'm talking 20 years ago, I used to go to dinner parties. And in those days, I was listening to Cannibal Corpse. I was listening to all kinds of things like that. You know, people would say to you, oh, so, you know, what kind of thing are you into? And you, you, you'd mention a word like that. And you cannot even understand yeah, yeah. you can't understand you can't yeah. even understand how unfathomable that world is to these people and i love that because heavy metal is like it feels like you're in a club and it's all of your own and everybody within that club completely gets it 
And to me, that's always been a source of great security because when I was a teenager and we were all doing the same thing, you know, our whole lives revolved around going to the local record store, picking up vinyl albums of metal bands. Our whole community and our whole reason for existing was centered around heavy metal. Everything else yeah. was secondary, you know, studies at school, social yeah. life, forget it. Everything was heavy metal. Everything else came second. And I still live like that. And I've somehow managed to become a sort of functioning adult. I've had two children who are now who are now adults themselves. I've, you know, I'm here, and I'm and I'm and I'm doing, as you said earlier, uh, Adam, a job that is free form that is allowing me to. Yeah, it's allowing me to to yeah. pick and choose when I do what I want to do and uh, who I want to do it with, and to me, that's part of that sort of whole community existence that heavy metal gives to me and the two go absolutely hand in hand do i want to continue writing books about heavy metal maybe not i mean there there's a couple more coming if 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 the right people come along i'll do them but it will never ever leave my uh there isn't a second that goes by each day that i don't think about heavy metal in some capacity so uh if you can relate to that in any way good on you yeah, it is. It's a lifestyle. And me too. I, I felt I felt safer at a heavy metal show, parking lot, waiting in line for the tickets, whatever. Because there was a whole there was a whole thing around even going to the concerts, right? Yeah. Just waiting in line for the tickets, calling in the Ticketmaster if you could. I don't know what your equivalent is over there, but meeting up with your friends and like sure, making sure. sure you're there to park. And I felt safer there than anywhere in my life as as a teenager and Thank goodness my parents understood that I felt safe. So they never held that from me. Yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. I mean, people say to me, oh, these concerts must be really dangerous. There must be a chance of getting beaten up. And I say, that's the last place you'll ever get beaten up. And if you did get beaten up, somebody would pick you off the floor and pick you up again. That's the thing. It's that community thing. So, yeah, I mean, you know. That's just my life, and it always will be. And, you know, there obviously is a sort of tie-in to the kind of McAfee life and that kind of thing that probably, you know, subconsciously drew me to that kind of thing. And uh, John didn't like heavy metal. We discussed it. He hated it. And that's fine. I just said you're too old. And he said, probably. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I think he got that I was passionate about it. So, uh, yeah, these things are all part of the same kind of mindset for me. That's awesome. I'm I'm excited. I, I didn't realize you wrote uh, all the books you did on the uh, what, Pantera. Uh, Nurgle of Behemoth. Oh. I did KK Downey and Judas Priest. I did Brian Slagle, who's the CEO of Metal Blade Records. I'm doing yeah. another book with him in a, in a year that comes out next year. I mean, I, I can't, I'll take any amount of that stuff. I just, I mean... <laughs> I could try to explain it to people. People who I was in school with say, you know, what do, what is it you do now type of thing? You seem to write about sort of metal people sometimes. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. And that's exactly what I was into at school. And I'm still doing it. What are you doing? And I'm looking at somebody who's massively overweight, probably divorced, very unhappy, working for somebody thinking, actually, this guy's got a point. He's, he's, living, he's living a life that is is he's passionate about so that's where i'm at yeah exactly i've got one more thing to tell you both and this is uh i'm not a bitcoin guy at all i'm a boomer from when it comes to that and 
but I am rock and roll. And when these yeah. guys, at, when these guys at Canonic came to me and said, Do you, "Are you familiar with Canonic?" Can't say that I am. Canonic are guys in Austin who are a self-publishing platform, uh, and they publish on Bitcoin. And they came to me and said, "Let's do a special edition on Bitcoin of the McAfee book. What more? What life was more piratical than John McAfee? And what is more piratical versus the the main publishers than publishing in Bitcoin?" And I said, yeah. "I agree with all. I agree with all of you." So. We've got a special edition coming out in the next few days, super limited, super luxury hardcover with signature, with numbers. It will be sumptuous with a holographic cover. In addition, it will be mirrored as an NFT on Bitcoin, uh, which will be very cool that people can trade and also will be a signal. You will hold that thing up and say, I'm in this world. So that's, you know, I'm not saying I know everything about Bitcoin. I'm not saying I know everything about crypto, but I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm down for an adventure and this is certainly one of them. So uh, anyone who's interested in that kind of thing, keep a lookout for it. John would approve. Yeah, well, that was part of it. I mean, I'm sure he would have approved. And uh, anything I can do here here on that, that, that kind of honors what he believed in, in combination of what we did together, I will continue to do. Well, speaking of which, what you said, projects in the works. What's in the works? Oh man. Well, okay. There, there is one. Uh, it's a heavy metal musician. Uh, it's, it's a book that's actually been sitting for since two thousand fifteen, and it's you might know the the band Queensrÿche. Jeff Tate was the lead uh -huh. singer in Queensrÿche, big band in the eighties and nineties. Had a big meltdown in the sort of late two thousands. But absolutely iconic band. Jeff's a friend of mine. He said to me many years ago, Let, let's do this autobiography. So it's in the works. It'll be finished tomorrow if I get off this call. And uh, it'll be published later this year. Then the other book I've got in the works uh, is in US politics and is a biography of Steve Bannon. Mm. Very cool. Hmm. Yeah. Authorized by Steve Bannon and with input directly from Steve Bannon. Do you have a goal in mind with the Steve Bannon book? The way you, you described it, the objective, or this is like just exploratory, just like this is going to be powerful one way or another? Uh, well, in the same way as I'm fascinated, as I was fascinated by John, I'm equally fascinated by Steve uh, for entirely different reasons. Uh, but but there are similarities. I think if you ask the guy in the street, what do you know about Steve Bannon? It's okay, Trump's campaign manager. Right. The war room, maybe. Do they know about Steve Bannon in China? Do they know about Steve Bannon at Goldman Sachs? Do they know about Steve Bannon in the Navy? Do they know about Steve Bannon making movies? Nobody knows any of these things. And I need to understand and Steve knows that I need to understand what made him the man he is now mm. uh, and what goes along with that nationalist populist movement that is so motivating for him. Uh, I need to understand what the mindset behind that is. Now, this can't be sycophantic, as I don't think my book with John was. Uh, 
because I think if you're sycophantic in a book like this, it has no credibility. People just say you were in the guy's pocket, forget it, you know, waste of time. It will not be like that with Steve. I will be talking to people who do not like Steve Bannon and have really good reason to hate Steve Bannon. In addition, I'll be talking to people who've worked with Steve and to uh, try and get a sense of who this man is. And it's really just a demystification process. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I think it will be of great interest to people. Certainly you know, the, the kind of inside baseball I will get. There, there's a great word, demystification, for the way I said it's an ex exploration and as an open goal, just going into a project like that, undeniably Steve Bannon is a critical, and I don't want to say misunderstood, but uh, under-understood character in right. modern American politics who, yeah. who deserves uh, examination at this point. So I'm, I'm excited to see what, what comes out of that. Yeah, so that's, that's ongoing at the moment. And uh, anything else that comes along in the next few months, uh, let's wait and see. I think our friend Ed would like that book. I, I, I remember him listening to the War Room quite frequently yeah. in the morning. Yeah. Before, so, well, yeah. I'd be interested. What are, you, what are your, your your two views on Steve and that whole world? Because let's be honest, the War Room is a parallel universe in some respects. Well, I, my I, I would be just to be raw, self-interested ideologue in this. Uh, I would say that Steve Bannon. As a creature parallel to Trump, has gotten a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be motivated and inspired in politics, but with a lot of misconceptions, a lot of bullshit, but a strong passion for principles that I would share of freedom and justice and, and ethics and anti authoritarianism and decentralization. Yeah. And I would hope that your exposition would lead a lot of conservative Bannon fans to, to turn libertarian, or at least to, to get to that next level of political awareness. Yeah. No, no. I mean, that is something that's on my mind. I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uh, qualified enough to call myself a libertarian, but I certainly have libertarian views. Uh, as as I also have lots of other views, but I do know what you're coming from with Steve, and I think a lot of people jump to conclusions when it comes to him, particularly when you mention the word nationalist and populist. People make an automatic jump to racism, which isn't necessarily a clear progression when you actually analyze the facts. And I think it's those sort of gray areas that I'd like to explore because these are very gray areas that the, the people that attach themselves to these kind of movements aren't necessarily the people who are at the forefront of them. A lot of people look at these movements and think, okay, here's a vehicle for whatever crank stuff I'm doing. I can maybe progress it a little bit on the coattails of this. Whereas the actual movement itself isn't necessarily of that ideology. That's, that's the way I think at the moment. Might all change in a few months, and I'll be coming on your show telling you something completely <laughs> different in six months. But we'll see. Uh, either way, either way, it doesn't matter. What matters is that that's what I'm doing, and I will continue to sit in this room, and I'll be able to continue doing this uh, great job that I'm doing uh, as long as people are willing to have me on board to do it. So I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Awesome. Well, Mark. 
you and I connect on Twitter, and um, I, I want I, uh, I don't have your handle. What, so what's what, but what's the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, just Twitter, and that's just my name at Mark Eglinton, E G L I N T O N, all one word. Uh, anything that I'm doing in terms of other books, uh, mostly I'll tweet about there. Anything that I'm promoting that to do with John, any insight I have on John in terms of what's happening with the case, uh, I'll try and put it on there. And you know, I like to think that my Twitter is a sort of reasonably open stream of consciousness, not sort of controlled by anyone keeping me on a hamster wheel of any kind. So uh, I hope that's attractive to people. And there's a bit of metal in there as well. So a bit of heavy metal. So what else do you want? All right. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Mark. We look forward to hearing from you again and all your future work. Really, really appreciate good. it. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. All right. I, I see our next guest is like staging an epic oh, musical interaction. Ah. Or something that's I, I was like, let's go let's go straight into it, Joey. You can just stay on screen here, yeah, because uh, because she's the one who hooked this up. But I'm really excited about this. This is a fun story, ladies and gentlemen. Michael Troy Moore joins us from Las Vegas, representing the Fremont Street Performers in a massive lawsuit. Not in Las Vegas, from Las Vegas. From Las Not Vegas. Not in yeah. Las Vegas. I, I am currently. Uh, this is this is by all meanings of the truth. I am a mayoral candidate for city of Las Vegas in exile. <laughs> and uh, there's an internet video that I explained it on. Um, how do I explain this? Cause there's so many layers to it. Uh, I've been a musician, a singer. I had a radio show between Howard Stern and Opie and Anthony about 20 years ago. Uh, my day job was, I was a special representative for the United Food and Commercial Workers and the Musicians Union which is an organizer and an in-house lawyer. And how I stumbled onto that is I would find these union busters would sell themselves as lawyers to the employer and, and the employees. And I, I would look into their backgrounds. I say, these guys aren't in the bar. How do they pull this off? And this is going back to the late 1980s. So I found the loophole where if you have three years union rep experience or three years human resources, you could be a lawyer for the for the organization, the corporate <laughs> union. I told my boss he thought I was full of it. And eventually he made me co-counsel with his lawyers. And I said, these lawyers are overbilling the union and not getting people back to work quick enough. And as a union rep, we're supposed to do the job the best for our ability. I said, well, hiring these bar assholes isn't it. They don't care about people. And uh, so uh, eventually he fired the counsel out of San Francisco that was like $700 an hour. And the night before a big six-week trial, he says, you go in there, you get the judge to swear you in or you're fired. You told me all that bullshit for the last 10 years about being a bar-exempt attorney. Here's your chance. Long story short, uh, for over 30 years, I've been a bar-exempt lawyer. And that's just been, been my utility belt represent, whether it's on human rights, labor relations, or whatever, uh, government misconduct. So uh, eventually that same judge, uh, boss uh, was stealing from the union pension, and I. Well, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I just want to jump into that topic just a little bit more of a of a bar exempt attorney, because like I've represented myself in a number of criminal cases and have gone through a couple of little hearings where they go, 
are you sober and sane and do you read English and blah, 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 blah. Do you know what you're getting into representing yourself? And the judge has to go through that process in order to say, okay, you're approved to be a pro se defendant. I assume that there's some similar thing. Like you said, you, you go get sworn in. That you, that, that, that there's, there's a hearing and then you say, they say, okay, you're, you're – because they cannot deny an individual, any other individual no. – the, the, the representation in court, right? Well, see, here, here was the problem. And guys that are my age now told me when I was 10 to 14 years old about all the conspiracy stories and the things where you would kind of do this and move away from them. But these stories stuck in my ear. And 99% of those stories have come to pass in the last 30 years. So I coined the term bar exempt. So when they would always, you'd walk up to the courtroom to represent your union members, they'd go, oh, Michael Moore? Bar number? And I go, I'm bar exempt, Your Honor. And they would sit there with a question mark covering over there. <laughs> I, I came up with the term in 1988. And uh, so they said they would go on and on. And then especially in right-to-work states, I would take a, a law that was used to hurt union treasuries and solidarities right-to-work, and I would reverse it. And I said, Supreme Court says the Bar Association is the union of attorneys in America, and this is a right-to-work state. I don't have to join your union, and yeah. uh, and I'm not I'm not competing with the bar attorneys because most of the time I'm representing people that can't afford an attorney anyway. So, long story short, on that is years and years of when I represented the big unions and had big money, never ever had a problem winning a case or pushing it. After I blew the whistle on internal union problems. I, uh, I got blacklisted through the whole labor movement. I organized 50,000 people in my career into, into collective bargaining agreements and won over 2,000 cases at that point. And I was forced to make a living to go become a street performer in Las Vegas. I had written a bunch of songs of my own and everything. And I was like, I don't know how covers are going to go. So I started playing them. And I found that, okay, maybe this is a place I can exist since the whole system has tried to uh, crush me and destroy me in my career. Not long after, I found the powers that be in Vegas, the Las Vegas Visitor and Convention Authority, Las Vegas Metro, the city marshals, the mayor, Mayor Goodman, Oscar, or Carol, his wife, they're the Mayor Goodman crime family, as I've pointed. Yep. They, had a, they had a meeting with former Sheriff Gillespie, and they had a plan in 2009 uh, that violated Title 18, Section 241 of U.S. Code Conspiracy Against Rights to rid all of Las Vegas of street performers and homeless. Now, I would play my guitar and I would see the police harassing a kid and I would take the guitar off and I'd go jump between them and say, why are you bothering this person? Well, the casinos don't mm -hmm. want him. Mayor doesn't want him. I said, they don't own the goddamn sidewalk. He has the First Amendment right to be here. Stand down. Well, just you know, well, hold on just a second, Mike. I, I want to interrupt you and I, I apologize for interrupting your narrative. Please hold no, that. No, no, no. I just want to share with the audience that I, I have some actual personal connection with this. Having done man on the street interviews in Las Vegas, uh, not Fremont Street, but on the strip, Joey's done this with me and has seen a little bit of the police interaction with street performers. Um, I, I, we, we've got videos of them uh, from a few years ago. The, the guys who, who carry uh, snakes around their shoulders. Yeah. And I, pose. I, I think I've seen those videos online. Yeah. Um, and we've heard other stories from street performers. 
when the, when the, the crowds are thin or there's interesting street performers noticing that I'm there doing Man on the Street interviews, they're so fun to talk to. Really, some of our best work in Vegas yeah. and Man on the Street is with street performers in Vegas. It's an awesome group of people. I don't mean like just group of people, but sort of like bigger slice of society that is made uniquely possible in places like Las Vegas and New York and the, like the other places I've done Man on the Street, Santa Monica at the Pier and, and Third Street Promenade. You know, as much as I'm a fan of decentralized society, there's certain beautiful things made possible by those those critical oh. foot traffic streams and population centers. And one of the things that inevitably comes with that is every city has some kind of political crime family. There's law enforcement that is out there on the streets harassing and trying to control it. And regardless of your political ideology, you can see that there's a kind of protectionism at play here where it's all about competing economic interests and there are those who want to earn their living honestly and that's every fucking last street performer. Yep. There's something direct and beautiful and honest about that entertainment for tips or whatever it is in your internet. Yep. I'm not talking about the three-card money people. I mean, like actual legit street performers who are there to put a smile on your You're face and, that, that, and inevitably... There are people who want to use government instead to line their pockets. And so, I, I, Mike, I, I, I hope you don't mind that interjection there to connect oh, no. the thing uh, from, from my experience and, and from my audience. So, but please, back to your narrative and, and how, I mean, that, that, that just intervening. Because, like, I do that with a camera. You know, you, you see someone getting harassed by a cop. Anybody who's got an inherent sense of justice wants to fucking protect the little guy and 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 so for me it's been with a camera at least i can i can shine that spotlight but you're doing it as, as a regular fellow street performer directly getting between cops and, and and their victims well that's what i used to do with the union for the meat cutters grocery clerks and even uh, the musicians were with the big labels i would step between the police and them as their union representative and the wine garden rights actually allow that that you're allowed to represent him just like an attorney or a lawyer. And I pissed Metro off so bad, they started taking equipment, and then I got him in contempt of court for Fourth Amendment violation. I said, hey, regardless if I violated a noise ordinance, this asshole took the tools of my trade, and I can't work off the strip. I beat those cases 2013, 2014. I started looking into the motivation. Originally, I thought it was the casinos. It's, it's a little different in that. It's another mm -hmm. racket. Uh, that's run by the Goodman crime family. And what mm -hmm. happened, they harassed me so much on the strip, I said, this is stupid. So I went down to Fremont Street thinking that yeah, they allow it down there a little bit more, but they were trying to corral all the strip performers down to Fremont and then write an ordinance that would cut 80% of us out of there. Schedule us, give us workstations, employee numbers, shit like that. Wow. But before that, before that happened, I was watching some of these semi-nude performers, and there was a guy in a Borat G-string, and he was standing there making about 75 an hour just doing this. And I'm sitting there playing my guitar, and I'm doing okay. And uh, the Monty Python side of me said, what if I do that, play guitar, and strap a stuffed rooster to my lap in a G-string and call it Rock Out with my cock out? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I did it as a joke for the first night, and it was so successful and so embraced by the people, because I'm playing Ooh. dead 
heavy metal riffs like uh, the yeah. similar Sabbath or Dio. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, suddenly I became famous among the tourists, world famous, where my pictures were all over the world and everything. And I was watching this whole thing come together. So I go to the city council meetings, Fremont Street Experience executives are there, the city council, and they go, well, we're gonna corral all the performers and we're gonna create these workstations. This was June 2015. And I'm in a, I'm in a yeah. suit and I signed up 1,500 to 1,700 of the street performers for authorization of you. And I went in there and I said, I represent these, these people. And if you vote this ordinance into law and then carry it out overnight, you become a de facto employer along with the Fremont Street Experience. And Brad Jervick, his retort to that the city council was not on. And I said, council, not long is not an affirmative defense five years from now when you're, the city's being sued for back minimum wage and, and uh, employee contributions. So we went on and on. They passed it anyway. The, one of the guys that go off, he co-authored the thing. And at first, it was a limited amount of controls. Now, I advised the city that I was the lawyer that helped the strippers in San Francisco in the late 80s be defined as employees so they could organize. The employer took all these controls and then said, the independent contractors, you have no rights. I told him, I said, look, I did this for years before I became a street performer. I know what I'm talking about. So once they did it, I started sending demand letters for back minimum wage for the last seven years. Every three months I send it. Right. On the schedule the city and Fremont Street keeps. Okay, you're working there for two hour shift and then there yeah, and there. Sounds like yeah. an employee. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. That sounds like an employee to me if the state's got Oh yeah. Oh, I mean at a glance it's an employer relationship. Yeah. <laughs> so it went from you know a, a you know a double digit con employer controls and then they started getting greedy and each year took more and more. And then what they would do is they would do constructive discharges and terminations. They would hand you a ticket and then you'd go to court. And before you got to court, you had two more tickets. And the judges, the municipal court judges were being misused as a human resources board of discipline and termination under the ordinance. And you would go in there and I would get them to plead not guilty and fight it and then say, what's your bar number? And I would tell them, I read them the riot act. They would back up. And a couple of times they said, well, you're, da you're dangerously close to practicing law without a license. And I said, I've never practiced law before. I'm not practicing law now. And I'm not practicing law in the future. I'm the president and general counsel of the union. This person has authorized me to be here, defend them in labor relations matter that can cause their termination. The Weingard rights by the Supreme Court says I can represent. So these judges were just confused and didn't know what to do. And Eventually, we beat the cases, but they would stack them. And they, they particularly went after the black entertainers, the young kids. And because there are really no infractions in Nevada, they were throwing them in jail for six months for having one foot out of the work stick. Oh, wow. And, and, and the law would only give them so much. But what they would do is say, well, you know what? You got these five uh, street performer violations. Why don't you agree to stay off of Fremont in the Strip for one year? And he got no jail time. But there was no law. You could go to the judge, prosecutor, and go like this, and still they couldn't do that to you. You had to voluntarily do it. And what yeah, I call the bullying, right? What's that? Yeah, plea deals and bullying. Oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's racketeering is what it is. It's it's a RICO statute thing. 
So I would go in there and originally the conspiracy between the mayor and the original sheriff in 2009 was to clear all street reformers and homeless off the strip in Fremont Street by 2016. Well, the anomaly of me walking in there as a street performer who used to get paid the big bucks to fight this for the two big unions was something they didn't count on. And, and I didn't do it for any money. I did it because for the first time in my union career, I essentially was rank and file with these same people. If they could do it to them, they could do it to me. And I felt that uh, it was my duty and my conscience, uh, spiritually everything, to step between the police, the city, and the courts and do this at my own at my own peril, which is <laughs> is uh, coming to fruition per se. So um, we got a majority of the union, and they just kept taking more and more controls. There are up to four hundred controls now. And every time we filed an unfair labor practice with the National Labor Relations Board, two or three times a year from 2016 to this year, the board would sit on it. Even though the, the, a lot of the labor laws changed to let gig workers organize that would have normally been independent contractors in the past, they would let it drag because, oh, God, the, the government would go, oh, it's just those street performers. And I, and I would say those street performers that are, by virtue of being in a public place performing, are protecting the First Amendment for everybody. Why do you look down? You got from performance, you got every level of talent, skill, and background. You got people who have nothing, and you got people with college degrees, and you got people like me that are in between. And uh, <laughs> so they kept taking and taking and taking. And then in 2018, I got asked to run for mayor because I chewed the mayor out on a, a issue of, over the illegal tax on hotel rooms and what she was doing. And about a month later, these four guys in suits came up to me while I was performing in front of Binion's on Fremont Street and started asking me 101 questions. And I, you know, I don't mind ask, answering questions and I'm friendly. So I said, are you guys offering me a job? And they said, well, we, we watched you hand the mayor her ass back at the city council meeting over uh, short-term rentals. And I said, yeah, she was wrong. She was unconstitutionally wrong. She's trying to put the owner of the house on house arrest if he rents his house out. She doesn't have that authority. They said, we want to know if you want to run for mayor. Mm. And I, I just started laughing. I said, I don't have the money to run for public office. <laughs> right. And, and I said, uh, let me think about it. So my father, who ran for mayor for 20 years of a Bay Area city, he never really had an agenda. He just wanted to fight corruption. And he almost got elected each time, and he eventually died in 2015. Almost. So I told it's myself. Always almost. Yeah, almost. Yeah, you should, what you should have said is, I don't have the gaping hole in my soul necessary to run a successful campaign for mayor of a major American city and oversee numerous criminal rackets. Well, what, what happened? What happened with me? I already knew what the the Goodman's racket was because uh, my old mentor told me back in the '90s how how they came to power. And uh, he was very well connected. He was more powerful than Jimmy Hoffa before he left office. And um, his name was Jack L. Lovell, for, uh, just, just for the record. But um, I decided the biggest problem on top of the street performance thing was the lack of water. So another family member of mine invented something. I found a solution for the water. And I made a 21-step agenda. I said, we're going to return the Constitution. We're going to operate by the city trade. We're going to operate lawfully instead of Iraq. So we go in January 28, 2019, and all hell breaks loose at the city clerk's office because they, they found out I was running. The lawyers come down. They go, well, here's our documents. And I said, no, here's my documents. Here's my declaration. 
well, why don't you use ours? And I said, because yours are littered with all kinds of unconstitutional errors. I'm not waiving rights to just seek office. I get the Secretary of State on the phone. Secretary of State demands the city of Las Vegas accept my declaration and certify me as a mayoral candidate. That gets done. The lawyer gets pissed off, runs out. They put me on the city's website for about 18 hours as the challenger to Carol Good, who's the incumbent. The next day she comes in, she loses her mind, and we pull Freedom of Information Acts, everything. They decertified me, erased me from the nominations, ballot, and election mm. without court order, simply because I've been fighting the city over the street. So we take it to federal court. It drags. It's still dragging. And then we decide that we're going to keep running. We're not going to let this go. And uh, we find out that uh, another candidate found out a bunch of dead people ages 85 to 107 living in hospices and rest homes were a majority of her write-in ballots. So before, <laughs> before the allegation of Trump's election being rigged, they did it to us. Mm. Mayor had a bunch of dead people run failing <laughs> ballots in 2015. Uh, Steve Sisolak, the governor, wouldn't investigate it. Secretary of State, nobody would investigate and then what they do is they just say that, you know, Mike Moore has no labor relations experience. He's not a bar member. He uh, wanders around on Fremont Street in a diaper. They literally <laughs> said, we don't have time for him. Please, National Labor Relations Board, cancel the hearing to determine the, the performer's employee status. But they didn't CC me and the board didn't tell me. I had to file a Freedom of Information Act about a year and a half ago to get a whole file. Over nine times, National Labor Relations Board, Region 28, the handles Las Vegas, bent over backwards to cancel the, the judicial hearing to determine whether we're employees or not. Wow. Well, I filed another charge, and I got it in Washington, D.C. right now. They, mm. I filed a 22-page charge uh, based on common law, the ABC test, and another labor board test. There's, there's only one small point that would say that we're not employees. Now, I argued with the general counsel there. I said, I want an oral argument because of the affirmative defense from the city and Fremont Street saying they're independent contractors. I want them to come in and prove that. I got 400 points that say we're employees since 2015. So what happened is, is the general counsel in Washington, D.C. is going to allow me that as of about I don't know, about a month ago. I think it was mid-January. So the city finds out. <laughs> and they and on September 27th, uh, 2000, they, they pulled me out of my scheduled work circle over to an alley, threatened me. They said I was performing during the light show. It was a violation of the city ordinance company policy. Uh, I was... Mm -hmm. My amp and amp lights on the police body camera show I was tuning and the mute light was on. No sound came out of this, but they're going to give me this ticket. And they said, the other reason is you pissed off Governor Steve Sisolak, Mayor Goodman. Oh, yeah. And you pissed off the Fremont Street uh, CEO and you pissed off somebody else. I think it was Wolfson, the county DA. And they said, they said this and I said, so what? I pissed them off. What are they mad? I'm out here in a G-string and I play nice guitar. They said, mm -hmm. no, no, you your fellow workers of their rights and you've informed the general public of the 15 mask exemptions under state and federal law because I had a sign uh, and they said if you come back to work we're going to beat your ass arrest you take your guitar 
I no. said, what are you going to I said, what are you going to arrest me for? And I said, Sisolak Directive 24. And I said, there's no mechanism to arrest me for that. And I said, by the way, page five says, if I work outdoors, I don't have to wear a mask. And they go, we don't recognize the exemptions. Now I said, look, I already mail Fremont Street. We legally define the Fremont Street area as indoors. This is our We define this as indoors for, for our purposes right now because we say so, whatever we may. Yeah. It's, and it's yeah. incredible that they did that just so directly. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing you're like, oh, man. That's what prompted the video that you posted on YouTube. Yeah, is that, that, is this the whole thing? Yeah, that, that body cams on YouTube and it took me almost a year to get discovered. Yeah. Because they gave me the ticket September 2020, and I realized if I went back, because, see, they pulled me to an alley away from witnesses behind Four Queens Casino. No cameras. They had their hands on their guns. And I and normally I'm I'm the bravest guy against cops. And I go, this is the part where the union organizer gets fucking killed or shot. Like back in the 30s. Yeah. I can get away with now, but not at all. It, it's sort of harder for them, they them those, to get away with murder the way they used to be able to kind of willy-nilly just kill people who got in the way. But it's still, it's not unheard of. And I want to say that I, I, I admire your activism and that in a way, I want my audience to appreciate as much as I've been to jail and face down cops, I have kind of deftly avoided going after individuals. And when, what informed me was Michael Hastings covering a few generals at the Pentagon before his mysterious car accident that he died in. And I'm like, you know what? I'll stick to the general, wake people up, challenge the system as a whole in the abstract, rather than go after individuals who have specific rackets, because that's how you get murdered. And, and at well, least in this day and age, threatened like that and legally harassed is the equivalent. You are absolutely correct, and, and no shame in anything you got to do to protect yourself once that threat has been raised. Yeah, it, it's not going to work anymore. And, and I've noticed over the years being a lawyer and a union representative, there is a parasitical phantom government riding on top of our republic. And uh, everything, the courts, I'm watching this and I go, you know what, that is like an echo of the real government. And some people say it has to do with the United States being a corporation in the late 19th century and things like that. And that's that's a whole other story. But I've seen it and it's here. There, there's... Sure. They they operate and I and I evaluated the situation and I said I go back I'm going to get beat up arrested they said they're going to take my guitar and throw me in jail I said if you're going to continue this interrogation I want my union representative here under Weinberg you ask for a union representative again you're going to jail I said I want your supervisor you ask for a supervisor you're going to jail and now I had my guitars and shit with me and I'm like I know what happens when they did this before they break the shit and impound and all that. So they, they basically said, if you come back to Fremont Street, we're going to beat you up, arrest you, take your shit. So I get the ticket, and it's for uh, performing during the light show. I go to court. They keep dragging out. I filed a defendant in error because I have no contract with the state out there. And I said, unless you're going to give me a W-2 and make me an employee, we have no agreement. I'm not bound by company policy. And they said, well, you were operating during the uh, light overhead light show. And I said, overhead light show. And I play stupid. I got the prosecutor to say on the record. I said, what is, what is that? And he says, well, that's operated by the Fremont Street Experience. 
And I said, well, uh, that's commercial speech, and my speech is free speech. And the Hudson River decision in New York says that free speech comes before commercial speech. Your Honor, you need to dismiss this. I filed motion after motion to dismiss essentially what was a equivalent of a jaywalking ticket. The city has spent $220,000 on prosecuting me over 19 months. It's, oh the only thing, it's the only thing they got on the union president here. I, uh, I, I don't break the law. I don't, you know, do a bunch of illegal shit. I organize you. And then with this uh, acceleration of the labor board situation, they held it over my head. And then um, uh, what they did is they said, we just want, we don't want any jail time. We don't want anything. We just want you to stay out of trouble for six months. And I go, it's already been 14. And then when I was out of court, they sent an attorney in without my authorization because I'd never in like nine months, I never entered a plea. Just motions to dismiss. This attorney, his bar number is 4528 in Nevada, comes in, says, I represent Michael Troy Moore. We're entering a plea, not guilty. He leaves without my knowledge. He comes back in two days, two days before I'm scheduled to be on the record, withdraws. And then a public defender walks up and says, I'm here to represent you. And I go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? I never got a financial disclosure to see if I qualified for a public defender. There's no jail time. What's yeah. going on here? Judge panics. Judge Hastings. And he says, we need to go off the record. And I said, I'm not comfortable going So he says, humor us, Mr. Moore, we have some housekeeping. He goes off the record. He dismisses the public defender. And he says, uh, you know, Mr. Moore, if, if you fight this and you lose, you're only going to get a maximum $1,000 fine. There's no jail. And, I, and we go back into the thing. And, they, and the, uh, public, or the city prosecutor's office um, offers me what's called a submittal. It, it's on a piece of paper where it's printed, uh, no contest, not guilty, guilty. Draws it in with a sharpie and says, if you agree to a submittal six months out of trouble, we will let this go. And I said, what happens if I get in trouble? He goes, well, then you go to jail for six months. And I said, even if I'm not convicted of the secondary? He says, yes. Because yeah, they're, they're just going to <laughs> come threaten you again and charge you with some frivolous nothing today. We all know. What was happening at the time is, and Fremont Street filed a complaint with the Nevada State Bar, and Tiffany, a bar investigator, contacted me. And we had a one-hour uh, interview, and eventually I gave her the 25 reasons why I don't have to be in the bar. And it turns out the city was trying to get me for practicing law without a license. After she interviewed me for an hour and a half, she says, well, can you just drop the ESQ off of one of your emails? I said, no. I said, why don't you send me an application to join the bar? You guys are a union. Why aren't you trying to organize? So she never sent me the complaint. I had to get it through a Freedom of Information Act. The city and Fremont Street were trying to throw me in jail for practicing law without a license, civilly and criminally. Now, she said it was signed by Brad Jerbic, December 3rd, 2020. However, Brad Jerbic retired as city attorney July 1st, 2020. <laughs> so these assholes, all inclusion, this, the mayor, the people who worked for, for the city court, city prosecutor's office, Fremont Street, and Paul Bloomfield, who tried to kill one of my witnesses in there, a guy named Jeff Hunt, okay. tried to kill him. And I submitted an affidavit because he was helping us. They ran six other people out of town on my witness list. So I'm sitting back, and I told the court that I have to leave town on September 1st to deal with my pension 
with the other unions because I'm in pension appeals in BC and uh, the Bay Area. They said, that's fine. I said, I can't promise I can be here. He says, well, if you take the submittal, it's over with. And I said, I'm going to go research the submittal, get back to you. Well, it's good till September 10th. Well, September 1st, I entered into the record, no contest. I pulled from the court record that there was a fine, $308. I paid it, affidavits, notarized everything, no contest, fine paid. I can't receive a fair trial in this courtroom due to conflict of interest. You all work for the mayor who I ran against. Just sure. retaliation for organizing union and me seeking public office. Good day, I'm done, September 1. The late December, the prosecutor emails me and says, we'd like you to sign a waiver of constitutional rights. Way after the fact, he knew by the September 15th, I pled no contest. And he bothered me and harassed me and solicited for me. And finally, I said, under what city, state, or federal law do you ask for this, me to sign away my rights? After the fact, after the case is closed. He says, I can't give you legal advice. And I said, you just gave me legal advice telling me to sign this fucking waiver of rights, asshole. And I said, again, I'm asking you under what law? Cite the fucking law, I'll sign the thing if it's true. And then he goes, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I said, well, goodbye. I get a call from a guy about two weeks later claiming we'll see you in court January 28th. I have not been subpoenaed or summoned or even promised to appear to any time in the year 2022. Case is closed several months back in September. So I contact Judge Hastings at Department 6 and say, I'm still out of state, can't make it, sorry. The Department 6 emails me back saying, well, Mr. Moore, you were supposed to be here January 24th. There's a bench warrant for your arrest. I said, that's good. And that's why you're in exile, because you're avoiding the bench warrant in the city of Las Vegas. It sounds like they want to run you out of town, too. I mean, correct me. Oh, yeah. That's, like, that's the vibe I'm getting. They just want to, because it's been an extra, an extraditable thing. There's no way. You get a, you get a part, you, you get picked up for anything else in any state. They're not going to ship you back to Nevada for this. It sounds oh, yeah. like. It's, it's, I believe it's a combination of two things. They don't want me to come back because they don't want me to run for mayor. That, that's not going to happen. I'm not conceding and giving up my right to run for mayor until the federal case. Yeah. In addition to that, what they've done, and as union president, I've represented people have done this to, is they write a bunch of capricious bullshit infraction tickets, which are low-level misdemeanors in the state of Nevada. They incarcerate people. If they're a troublemaker like me, a political dissident, or just somebody they don't like, and they say, you know, if you just gave up your rights to sue and stop this trouble, we could let you out of jail. So they, they incarcerate you and do that. Now, um, what's happened was I filed my motion to quash, eight motions to quash with the new judge, because magically, five days after the judge got, Judge Hastings got my uh, uh, quash motion, they parade him in front of the mayor and the city council. And they say, thank you for your service. He's retiring out of, out of turn before his term's over early. And he got a big bonus, golden parachute, from what I understand, they even gave him extra pension years that he wasn't on the clock for. So then I get a judge named Nordstrom. And I she she apparently uh, turned down my motion to quash. Turns out she uh, assists the bar in prosecuting people who practice law without a license. One of the things they were going to try to entrap me. They're yeah, never be a threat to the whole lawyer racket. Then you're a threat to the whole lawyer racket. Uh, yeah, I guess so. 
uh, the thing is, is uh, the people I can't afford them, and they're not doing pro bono work, so screw them. Well, so hold on, Mike, because we don't have a lot of time left. I, I, and I, and I, you'll have to indulge me. I want to go back and, and touch on something you said and, and challenge you to maybe go a little deeper with us before we give you a chance to catch up on, on where we are now and where you're, you're hoping to go with this. But it is important to address this, this bigger issue of understanding of the nature of government. Yeah. As you said, it's, and, and it sounded really brilliant. I, 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 excuse me, I want to go back if, if, if you can sure. give me the I, exact I'm having, I'm having a little trouble hearing you, but go, go ahead. Yeah, you said something about a shadow government on top of our republic. Is, was that Joe? Yes. That I, my own observation from being in courtrooms arguing with these. Uh, these uh, black magic people, as I would say, even if there is no magic, they certainly operate by ritualistic magic in there, even if they're pretending. Oh, yeah. And uh, colors of popes, things like that. Men <laughs> my age told me back in the day that I've seen come to pass. This shit sounded crazy when I was a little kid. And what I've coined, like I coined the phrase bar exempt attorney or bar exempt lawyer. I'm not an attorney by any means. I'm a lawyer, general counsel or esquire. And, and what I see is there's a phantom government that, that is hovering inside of ours. And some people talk about the admiralty flag and things like that. And all these other things that are very complex. I guess a goddamn phantom government is not the constitutional republic that was formed. And it isn't what we were told when we were growing up. It is a huge fraud. Well, so here's where I, would, here's where I need to put you on the spot and ask the, the fundamental question. It's a great extrapolation of your statement earlier um and, and and the sentiment i think is very important in waking up but it seems almost naively idealistic to suggest that the core of our republic or a constitution that authorizes a central bank and taxation and the standing army and in its first iteration legitimized slavery somehow the ideal that is being denied by the corrupt actors that you are face to face with, but that rather it is fundamental to the nature of government itself as a coercive entity. To say that it is a shadow government on top or a phantom of, of corruption on top of a core of legitimacy it, it is to suggest that at its core, this concept of coercive constitutional government is even legitimate and, and has some hope of being rescued rather than something that needs to be fundamentally re-examined from the ground up. If I understand your question, it's, it's uh, what, what I see is there was a republic founded at one time, and it, somehow it was hijacked, either by uh, the District of Columbia becoming uh, a corporation, U.S. Inc., uh, the whole Sestake, the uh, city-state of London, and the Vatican. Now, those things all sounded like way out conspiracy theory 30, 40 years ago when I was told about it. But then as I go to participate in the Republic as a lawyer of the Republic and the people, suddenly I see these assholes not working for the Republic. They're working for some foreign entity. It was one of the reasons I left the Democratic Party, because I saw I worked with Harris, Newsom and all those people out of Sacramento when I worked for the UFCW. And I went back in the. 90s, I was going, these people don't give a fuck about the Constitution of the people. And, you know, people coin it the New World Order and all that shit. And it's a bunch of greedy people that want 
what I believe is worldwide slavery and depopulation. Now, it sounds crazy, but if I'm in a courtroom and this shit's going on, there's something to it. And every time I win a case, the judges go from a black robe, they leave the room, and the prosecutor leaves, and he, the prosecutor goes out the public entrance but reappears backstage with the judge. They dismiss the case or they say, not guilty, Mr. Moore. But there's something they do. They change their robes to a different color than black, maroon, purple, blue, all that. They're changing jurisdictions. And I can't get enough information on this to really mm -hmm. nail it down. It's an observation I've made for 35 years. How come when I win, the guy leaves the black robe for a, a colored robe? So, so the reason I think this is really important, I'll, I, I want to bring it back to your work and give you a chance to talk about you know, what your what, 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 where your hopes are now for the future, because trying to salvage something that is fundamentally corrupt versus you know rid ourselves of the of the, the social cancer that it is now <laughs> is really important, and I, and I think. As obviously you are extremely well informed and educated and historically aware, I think what you're missing in, in the way that you talk about the Constitution is that it was it was always the Constitution was an excuse to ignore the Articles of Confederation and the concept of government by consent in the first place. And 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 I know I know that you're familiar with the outline of this history, but the reason that's so important in guiding the work of people like you and, 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 and our co-host, G.I. Mary Jane, and, and so many other activists, is that it keeps our eye on a bigger prize and ensures that our efforts are in line with these fundamental truths about the nature of society and government, because otherwise we might find ourselves caught in some legal morass. And I say this as someone who is dabbled in legal morasses myself and and done four well altogether six months of time and in, in, in as a result of my civil disobedience and i've spent three years well it was supposed to be three years i think whatever it altogether years whatever of, of being on probation where i i can say the incidents where i've said fuck you i'm not even going to recognize your illegitimate authority i'm not going to sign your papers I'm going to sit in solitary confinement and demand my rights as a pro se defendant. Go fuck yourself. You know, like I've, I've ended up, I've, I've come out cleaner and, and less, you know, in less Sisyphusian efforts that it sounds like you are in, at risk of getting sucked into at this point. So with that being said, so feel free to respond to that. Have the last word on this, this bigger existential uh, you know, issue that I've introduced, and please tell us what, you know, what we can do to support you well, and what you hope to come out of your efforts now. Well, I mean, <laughs> if I understand what you said, I had hearing it. There's a legal scholar in Las Vegas fighting the system on the level you're talking about, and he says the one thing I'm doing wrong is you're playing lawyer. He's an American national, and he's got out of that American citizen thing, and he's made real progress, and it's kind of like I got my one foot of mine as an almost an American national and one foot of mine as a lawyer. And he says, you're playing lawyer. You're in their trap. You need to get out. Yeah. I, yeah. I, agree, I agree with him. The problem is I got one foot in the grave and one on the banana peel in this. I'm too vested. And the people I represent, I have a duty to see this through, prove their employees and follow up on their back minimum wage for seven years, which is over a hundred, hundred, million dollar claim 
and at least get them the status and dignity they want. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm home. Yeah. I never wanted mayor of Vegas, but I did want the government to work right and and corruption. And one of the biggest problems we have with Fremont Street is the Goodman crime family has illegal kiosks, no business licenses whatsoever, people working under the table, involved in human trafficking. And I've alerted government agencies who are peering into this, but between organizing the union back minimum wage, they issued a fraudulent warrant to incarcerate me so I can't give oral arguments to the National Labor Relations Board in D.C., because if they incarcerate me, they won't let me out for that kind of court proceeding. And if I lose that, it's gone. The mm. statute of limitations, everything else. That's why they've uh, suspended my driver's license, registration, and insurance. And just tell me, come back to Nevada. And all these things. It's like I am phantom Nevada, the Nevada's phantom government public enemy number one. Nobody has got this far fighting them with no money in their pockets. And I got accused of actually coming as close as possible. I'm only hitting the tip of the iceberg. I formed a union to protect these people and try to resolve this peacefully with the powers that be. Well, they had too many illegal rackets going on at Fremont Street. I don't know if a boycott's in order. I don't know if a petition to make me mayor. Free Mike Moore like Free James Brown. Um, we're looking at the different options. I do qualify for whistleblower status, but I don't have a lot of faith in the government because there's so much money involved. We've had several, seven federal cases spinning for five or six years in the federal courthouse down there where we can't even say, good morning, Your Honor, here's our argument. Even on the um, case to rerun the election, uh, the judge kept saying, we don't know who you're suing. Well, it's fucking city of Las Vegas and these four people right here for rigging the election. We don't know who you're selling. And then even with my own federal loss, my pension, because my former union's trying to cut my pension by 80%, but I have all my records. I sued them under ERISA. The judge goes, we don't know who you're suing. So what it is, giving you incomplete forms, and then what they're doing is just cul-de-sac, hoping you'll burn out. And yeah. the, problem with, the problem with is I'll start crying and licking my wounds like a little girl in private. <laughs> and then I will get a fire in my belly going, these motherfuckers are breaking the law. They're criminals. They're domestic enemies of the Constitution, yeah. people of America. I would, I would just say they're creatures of the Constitution, products of it. But I don't want to sidebar with that. that what you're doing is so beautiful and empowering, I, I, and I really applaud your work and, and everything you're doing there. Before you go and tell us how to connect with you and support your work, one other question I got to ask. You had your guitar out earlier, and you got it behind you there still. Are you going to show us your guitar? Oh, yeah. That is my carving guitar there. Oh, that's great. Made in America. It is, uh, I'm in the room where I try to record when I'm here, and I was trying to think of a background. I didn't have time for a proper one. That's a California carved top. I'm actually a vocalist, but it, when I was at Fremont, I, I worked as a guitar player because it was a lot easier just to play and amuse the drunk people. You know, I didn't have back. and uh, you know, people want me back down there to perform, and there's no way in hell I'm going back there until uh, my rights are restored, and the city is, uh, you know, Mayor Goodman's in jail or pulled out of office because Paul Bloomfield and uh, Officer Lipschitz, and that's his real name, uh, of the mayor's secret uh, marshal 
police, the Department of Public Safety, they're just beating the shit out of people down there that fight for their rights. I've witnessed it. Uh, they tried to break the neck of one of the guys that picketed with me when they boarded up Fremont Street. We picketed during the shutdown saying, open the public street back up. I remember I you, were, you were right on top of that. Yeah. Yes. Hi, good for you. <laughs> uh, this was one of the signs. And it, I don't know if you can read it, but it says mm -hmm. public performers unlawfully locked out by Sisolak and put the performers back to work and all that. And uh, we picketed for a while and uh, they had boarded up everything. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled at Fremont Street. Those four blocks is public property. Now, I finally got through the Freedom of Information Act, the management agreement between the city and Fremont Street. They just extended it to the year 2035. There was money being shuffled. There was some things with the bonds for the light show in 2019. But Oscar Goodman, the former mayor's mob museum, had the mob museum put in stone and 75 feet in the intersection of Stewart and Ogden. The money came from those bonds. It was supposed to go to light show three blocks away. He also bought the building when he was mayor or just after he was mayor for a dollar. He kept it purposely empty. It was the old post office. And then, like a squatter, he was able to go make a bid on a dollar. It's it's so corrupt. And the, and yeah. the sad part is, like you could write a book off of all the things that you've seen, Mike. But for now, you do it on your YouTube channel, which I love. Do you want to tell people how to get a hold of you on YouTube? Yeah, YouTube. It's uh, put in Michael Troy Moore. You're going to find all kinds of things because I've I've done comedy, I've done radio. Um, I had a band called. Where I watch your stuff at? That's the channel yeah. I. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, if you see me in front of the city council on YouTube, click into that and then go into the videos. They won't list all my videos, but there's 42 videos of me fighting them. And the police body cams there where you can see it's complete bullshit in the stop. And uh, I, you know, I thought there was a chance I was going to get killed there. So I kept my hands on the hood of the car and um, I, they were given a message to get me the hell out of there. And then I have not been able to work since September 2020. And, and that's one of the reasons I, I sought this file an early pension because they've been dragging this case out for the street performer ticket for 20 months. Now there's a warrant. A lawyer went in there, committed fraud and malpractice at their direction, entering that not guilty plea. And that is further complicated this. Oh. And uh, one thing I'd like to say at the end of this is we got good press till about 2018 with the news stations, Channel 5, Adam Herberts, and uh, another guy named Christopher with 13. And, and then, then the, the crime family got to them, right? What's that? And then the crime family got to them and said, no, you can't give this positive coverage anymore. No, no. And what happened was after we beat a bunch of cases and stopped performers from being arrested, for, uh, they would block the sidewalk and the cops would hit them. We, we brought up Monroe versus the District of Columbia in uh, 1919 with the suffragettes. As long as they're engaged in a constitutional free speech action, you can't be prosecuted for blocking a sidewalk or a public thoroughfare. So right after that, they locked us down. That billionaire that bought the damn newspaper, the Review Journal, locked us down. They won't print retractions. They print erroneous shit. And all their whole job is to make the Goodman crime family look the nicest thing since sliced bread. And you know what? If the Goodman crime family doesn't like being called the Goodman crime family, these guys opened the goddamn mob museum because he used to represent the mob. And I said to him one time, I said, well, what if you represented Jeffrey Epstein? Would you open yeah. it him? And he just looked like you, you're, you're representing crime. 
you know, I mean that, you know, and you know, the Sopranos, the Godfather, that all had a sexiness and was interesting. These people are not sexy. They're not interesting. They, they don't even have any skill, talent or vision. And soon they're going to run out of water in Las Vegas. And then where's the tour? Oh, they're stealing it from Colorado. Remember? I read an article yeah. about that. I read an article about that. So. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, no, those people will, like, the predator class will always find a way to be predators one way or another. And, and Mike, what you're doing is, is, is really, really incredible. And, and um, I, I hope we can have you on again and, and, and promote your work at, at whatever the next appropriate case is. Anytime. And this, uh, my experience has so many layers, it's hard to actually um, articulate it sometimes because I become the rain man of this. You know, yeah. came sucks, the Goodman suck. And, and people don't, it's hard for them to believe how many layers in there. They're, it's hard for them to believe that, like you're saying, the predator class would go to these extremes to enslave, kill, and harm people and steal from them. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, after I get this oral argument with the labor board, they're going to say, no, nope, you guys are employees. Then it goes back. Then we get to file with the state labor commissioner for the back minimum wage. And I have such a paper trail with, the, with Fremont Street. The city of Las Vegas, which they've never answered. They never said, no, we don't owe you back minimum wage. They just don't answer. Certified letters, everything. So the judge in that case, if we get that far, is going to go, and what was your response in 2015 to the back minimum wage? Oh, you didn't answer? <laughs> you know, and maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, not to be selfish for my own careers or anything like that, but maybe the logical conclusion is to get the employee status, get these performers justice let the public know because there's a news blackout and then go you know what i'm done i'm retired you guys take care of me. because um they're going to keep enslaving people and they are committing uh mislabeling independent contractors involuntary servants and human trafficking and slavery laws. i just brought that up to the labor board too saying if they're not employees well they're voluntary servants so everything's going to get really ugly and i think they want to put me in jail for this invalid warrant in order to say, well, you better let this shit go and withdraw all these actions or uh, you're never getting out of here alive. I do fear for my life in that sense, not because I have any uh, paranoia. I just know what they've done. And if you look at the history of the current sheriff and the county jail and the, the private jail and the Goodmans, a lot of people have accidentally died in those jails. And the feds investigated them in 2016. Whoops, he fell down the stairs. Oops, he hung himself with a toothbrush. Things like that. So uh, the main thing is, is, is we got to get some kind of justice. And, you know, these guys are violating every natural, universal, common law, everything, and nobody's doing anything about it. And I certainly well, am not. Mike, Mike, I, I know justice delayed is justice denied, as MLK would say on this, but uh, you got to stay alive to see it. And uh, I hate to sound like the safety first guy here, but I, I encourage you to to, to delicately sidestep the, uh, I don't know, the mouth of the, the lion here because it no. it's not worth your life. I'm a father of four and my kids are all raised. I've got four grandchildren. I just recently remarried in August. And uh, I would like to let all this shit go, but it it's not to a conclusion yet. And, and, and seriously, I don't think they're going to let it go because I've, I've cost them too much money and hassle. And yeah. they're willing to spend $200,000 plus to bust me on a jaywalking ticket. 
20 not have to admit that they're wrong. That's it. That's all it comes down <laughs> to. Protect the racket, yeah. Let me, let me say this, and you know what should happen is the city of Las Vegas should face a trusteeship and a grand jury. And everybody on the city council who is an accomplice to this and is looking the other way, because I've, I've informed them all and they won't respond. Maybe everybody needs to be pulled out of the mayor's office, city council, all the city managers, the city trustee, the grand jury investigation vote, because there is such a paper trail of corruption and money laundering down in Fremont. They would all go away if, if the federal government would do what they're supposed to. Yeah, maybe the DOJ will wake up. You know, maybe it's going to take me getting put six feet under to actually go, oh, they fucking killed him? Oh, okay, let's go look now. Does I would certainly never stake my life on the federal government. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, I mean, you know, when that's, I was... That's, 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 yeah, that's, that's what the rubber meets the road about my point earlier. And that's why you got to step back and ask that bigger question about what is the nature of government? Because if you hold on to some fantasy that, oh, well, federal politicians are somehow less corrupt. No, they will. And Michael, if I could give you one piece of advice and really considering this and understanding your power in this, they will, like, the only reason a judge will ever hold a cop accountable is in order to maintain the credibility of the system for, to, to protect the overall racket. Your power is in embarrassing them and holding them accountable that way and shining the light. But if, if you target individuals and, and you put individual people who control cops and you put their livelihoods at risk, yeah, they'll... And with, with me... I really didn't give a shit when I was a performer in the beginning what rackets they had going. I'm performing just to feed myself because I've been blacklisted to work a regular day job. And they came and attacked me and my fellow workers. I formed a union to stop them, and that's why they're on. And that's the nature. Sorry, that's, that's our technical difficulty here. <laughs> well, did you have any other Did you have any questions? No, no, that's, that, I mean, just, is there any other uh, information that people need for how to connect with you? Well, uh, I'm trying to think what email. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on, uh, not, no, not Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter is more for mayor, and uh, Instagram is rock out with your cock out, and then more for mayor on TikTok. Uh, an email for me is Michael Troy Moore, ESQ. AOL.com. I'm probably one of the original people that got on America Online back in the day. My kids make me for it. But uh, Michael Troy Moore at ALO or Michael Troy Moore ESQ at ALO.com. Um, I, I think it is my purpose to disseminate as much information as I can. And maybe it'll help other people. The main, the main thing is uh, they said you can't fight City Hall. And I always said you got to have balls to fight City Hall. And, and on top of it, if you're right, why not fight it? But the problem is too many people are surrendering with this whole pandemic bullshit and violation of the, uh, every right there. They just rolled over us, and they're still rolling over us. And then the people are saying things about, well, we need to stand with this country over there. I go, you didn't stand with this country in the last two goddamn years. Yeah. So I, was having, I was having standoffs with the police over the mass thing. Now, I had a medical reason, but at the same time, 
they didn't have a right to put the the uh, face prison on me. Yeah. And and I and I that was the other thing during the the arrest for the street performer ticket. They were I pissed off the governor. He actually drove by me at Casino Center. I had a sign that says Sisolak sucks, and I was pointing at the rooster on my lap. And he <laughs> saw it at the stoplight. It wasn't four days later I got shaken. And there's actually uh, somebody to I did a song Sisolak sucks the the cock, and it's just me gyrating, pointing at the Sisolak sign. But you know what? That's the one thing I have. They don't. They can't create anything. They don't have the power of creation. I do have that, whether I can create good stuff or not. And that's been the best weapon I've had. They always told me rock out with my cock out was going to harm me. That's where I got the support because people see, well, this guy's funny like Monty Python, but shit, he can rip like Tony Iommi. And, and, and he knows his rights. You go, you know, and it's like when you look at these people being mayor of the of the party city USA and they're in their mid 80s, it's like, what kind of fucking party are these old hags doing? <laughs> the younger people, you probably even need somebody younger than me to be mayor of Las Vegas. Because, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there. And uh, but the nice part is every time they piss me off with some petty thing or misstep in the law, a couple of days later, I get back up and swing. Well, Michael, you give me hope that Vegas could experience uh, a, a legitimate revival if, if you are truly, ultimately successful one way or another. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for all your work. Thank you for having me because um, three years of a news blackout has been a bother. <laughs> I know. That's all I can say. I can tell. I understand. It's a long, intense, complicated story. We'll be following up with you, Mike. Well, I, I, I'm thinking of producing a documentary on this. Our union's called the Sonic Labor and Visual Entertainers Union, which is S-L-A-V-E, the Slave Union. And I'm thinking of calling a working title the Slave Union, 10 Years of Slavery in Las Vegas. Because everything's right. done. Awesome. Hey, guys, thank you for everything. All right. Yeah. That was, that was unexpectedly rich and fun. But, yeah, like you can tell he's just, Yes, and it's like, yeah, I, I'm so many. I mean, I'm glad, I, I, I want everybody who saw that interview to connect with Michael Troy Moore one way or another. Follow him, connect with him. If you're in the area, if you support that work, yes, it is. That's that's what it is. Follow him on YouTube. Um, union it, on YouTube for audio. I mean, I can I can keep going on this because I'm I, I'm excited about Las Vegas revival and thing. You know what? It's so much more than that because of humanity. If Michael can be successful, and America can take back Vegas, then humanity can take back that that deeper spirit. That's a really beautiful thing. So, um, what else do we have to do before we wrap up the show tonight? I'm, I'm so distracted from everything else. We wanted to cover, but man, has it been an awesome show tonight. Yeah. Been a fun opening monologue. We have, a, I mean, there's not much update on Ed, unfortunately, except that he's in Orange, Virginia, and you should send him um, uh, a letter. Yeah, a healthy disrespect for authority was asking, uh, I think that's who it was on, on Odyssey, if, if he can get books, can can we send Ed books? Does anybody know the answer to that question? Um, no, yeah. I'm, try it. We'll try it. Uh, you can look, so I'm, I'm, it's central, I'm, I'm looking at the messages on Telegram, uh, from his wife. I, she said, Ed is in Central Virginia Regional Jail. 
um, and he's using something called securestech.net. I think I have an email about that. I have to figure out. They have a phone service and email service called eMessaging. He's only allowed 15 minutes at a time. Um, so I need to figure that out. Um, but yeah, I think that's all we like. I mean, I, I guess that's all we have to cover for right now. Fine. I, I guess yeah. let's, uh, let's get, let's, uh, I, I want to, I was going to get around on backstage and like, look, I can, oh, I can pull up wait. Jim. Before we get to the, see, uh, layout? our second favorite part of the show. Again, you can do Jim's job. Uh, I can fuck no, with no, Jim's no. I want to. I want to mention uh, a fundraiser. We are the seventy-four. We've had Bethany on a few times. Uh, this is the group that is representing seventy-four percent of Mississippi voters who said yes to medical cannabis. Um, and now, finally, a year later, after they all voted yes for it, it's finally getting approved. They tried to block it, but they're doing a fundraiser for the little kids whose pictures they've been featuring for the past few years to try to get this legislation passed. And I think it's really cool that they want to give back to those families uh, to try to help them while these kids are still fighting battles with epilepsy, you know, cancer, God knows what else. The terrible pictures to look at, I, I, it hurts. Uh, but this is what lawmakers need to see to get this through. So, um, yeah, do, do the We Are the 74 search on the old Facebook. Jim, did I send you that link? Uh, or, oh, I don't know. I'm sorry, I wasn't ready for that. It's okay. I I did, you know. Yeah, you did. It. You did. I was. I dropped the ball here. I'm getting to it. No, no worries. Yeah, it's it's just on Facebook. They're not using GoFundMe or any of these weird platforms. You know, I would argue Facebook is just as weird of a platform. Um, but yeah, check this fundraiser out on Facebook. It looks like they've raised $150 with, uh, what's their goal there? 180 out of 2,500. Yeah. So, um, head on over there. Drop $4.20 for the weed kids that, that are battling every day. Uh, and finally, finally, <laughs> have some relief, however small in Mississippi. So I really the other things I wanted to cover, and I'm just going to make us a plug for the Producers Club. There are other legal developments involving Proud Boys who we've been entertained by over their Ukraine trolling uh, regarding January 6th and Ed's case and what we would be expecting there. Um, but I will tell people go to Eat On Me, where we've been sharing these all week about that. And with that, Jim... Yes, as you said, t.me forward slash Adam versus Man. You're going to find everything you need regarding the show there. Patreon.com forward slash Adam versus Man is how you can join the private producers club to get a little bit more insider information, get some inside baseball going on with Adam versus Man and homefrontbattlebuddies.org. As always, theft deductible donations. Give it, check it out, hit all the buttons. Hope you enjoyed the show. We're way over two and a half hours. It was a great one. Uh, oh, are we smoking weed one more time? I already didn't close everything out. No, I didn't. I'm lying.
Until next week, everybody. All right. Thanks so much for watching, listening, tuning in wherever you are. This has been Adam versus the man. And with that, peace and love, y'all. Choose happiness and be excellent to